0: This is Jocko podcast number 127 with echo Charles and me Jocko Willink. Good evening echo. Good evening Iwo Jima is to me hallowed blessed spiritual sacred pure ground if The spirits of the dead could speak. What would they be saying to me? Count off, Marines and sailors, you of the vanquished dead. When your number reaches 7,000, we will know that you are present and accounted for in this, your eternal duty station. Serve well. Your ranks are growing each passing day as some of us, your mates in war, are coming to join you those endless hours of terrifying nights the carnage devastation and pain turned hope into despair the remnants of formerly dynamic human bodies that carried hearts filled with dreams of peace home and loved ones after the rush of battle my eyes became heavy with tears my body trembled with rage as I looked upon the broken bodies the searing invasion of human flesh aftermath of war an elemental suffocating fear through and through my very soul the intensely surging immediacy of the action was aggravated no place to hide there was not only an incompatibility between the Marines and the defending Japs but the very nature of this morbid little island the sounds of battle which were intensified by the human voice with all its emotions are absent today the moral revulsion that took place here so many years ago has been forgotten Except by those who fought here and survived and Those who lost lost loved ones here And that is an excerpt from a book called Hell yes, I do it again Written by a man Actually, written by a Marine named T. Fred Harvey, who fought in World War II in the Pacific Theater, including in the Battle of Iwo Jima, where he was severely wounded for a second time. But he survived the war and has lived an amazing life, and it is an incredible honor to have this hero here with us to share some of the lessons that he learned. Mr. Harvey,
1: welcome to the show. I'm glad to be here. I've heard a lot about this show and I'm really pleased that you've invited me to come here and speak to you.
0: Well, maybe you can just keep coming back because we'll just sit and listen to you. We got no problem with that, sir. so I guess we always try and go back to the beginning a little bit and learn a little bit about you And and I know you're you're growing up and your book has uh, a bunch of incredible <laughs> Anecdotal stories about what it was like growing up in Texas during the depression so You know I was talking to you earlier, and I said people don't know what the depression was really like and uh, You described it in one word You said hungry. (laughs) So that's a real thing, huh, during the Depression?
1: Yeah, that was a real thing. I vividly remember all the good times while eating and the hungry times when I was really hungry. I joined the Marine Corps. That's the first time I had adequate food to satisfy the hunger within me. (laughs)
0: So, and you, you you grew up with a single mom for the most part, so you, you, I know your dad was doing good in construction, but then the depression hit.
1: Yeah, the depression hit, and it really hit the Harvey family. At one time, the, the Harvey family consisted of 11 people, nine girls, two boys, a father and mother. And my mother was the center of my universe. When I went into the Marine Corps and the last night that I spent in Odessa before I got to boot camp, the train stopped in my hometown of Odessa. And they had the band, high school band, and a lot of people from town were there uh, to greet us. The conductor said, we're gonna stop for 20 minutes because the people of Odessa want to see you off. There was three of us going to the Marine Corps at that time. When we got there, there were girls there that were throwing kisses on me (laughs) that I never dreamed of being able to even touch. (laughs) And I was about ready to quit the Marine Corps and stay there. (laughs) Well, during all this, somebody grabbed my ear and jerked me around behind the depot, and it was my mom Jessie Lee. She, my mom, was a Comanche Indian, and she was a warrior. She pulled me around in the dark of the uh, night behind the uh, outside of the uh, crowd so nobody could hear what she had to say. And she called me Sunny because I was so bright. (laughs) She put these this hand up in front of me like this right there, so I could see it. She said, Sonny, you listen and you listen good. Yes, ma'am. She said, number one, when this war is over, you come home to us, ma'am. And don't you come home no drunkard. (laughs) And you don't come home no coward you know what that fourth one was? And you don't come home with no tattoos. <laughs> and I sure don't have any tattoos. <laughs> and that was when she sent me off to San Diego. And uh, I'll tell you a little bit later in this session that she came out to see me, and you'll see the reason why she came out to see me. So, uh,
0: You actually at at one point um, And I thought that was a real interesting thing because it seemed like you got a lot of weight on your shoulders as a young As a youngster and I'm gonna go to the book here for a minute I greeted my mom cheerfully she avoided my eyes, and this is just you coming home from school I'd greeted my mom cheerfully as usual she avoided my eyes and wiped her own with her apron I noted with concern a puffy redness about them she got up and went to the oven and brought out a baked potato and a big bowl of pinto beans Thanking her I dug in in silence. She entered that same bedroom my thoughts centered wholly on the food Without preamble. I heard a loud beseechingly desperate cry come through the closed door No, Jesse not that and that was your dad with a gasp I spewed a mouthful of food knocked over the small table and went through the door without benefit of the knob in the dimly lit bedroom I viewed a scene of heart-choking horror a picture forever etched in my memory my father desperately grappled for the pistol my mother tried to bring down on herself or him without wavering or hesitation I lunged at her with all the force I could muster I caught her with a fist to the side of her head she sagged at the knees dropped the pistol and fell forward inert she laid down on the floor I was horrified by what I had done my father staggered back and slumped, whimpering, into a corner. I headed to the bathroom and came out with a bath towel, sopping wet with cold water. I applied it to her suffering face until she came around. Unsteadily, I helped her to her feet and then seated her on the side of the bed. All the while, Dad remained in the corner, too, shaking to get up or offer any assistance. Too shaking to get up or offer any assistance. Sobbing I cried why mother why why? With a clear steady voice. She said your daddy does not love us anymore. He has another woman
1: That's a lot of a lot of for a young kid to deal with Yeah, it was the saddest moment my whole life. I'll never forget that and uh, My mom was a great mom She held the family together after he left us. He applied for a divorce, and I went to the the judge's chamber with my mother. And the judge called me and my father to come to him. And my mom was too weak to get up to go, go to the judge. The judge said, Mr. Harvey, I'm granting you a divorce. The six cho- remaining children in their family will remain with their mother, and you will pay in the sum of $42 for child care a month for six children and herself. And that was the last penny my dad ever spent on us. and uh, We just divorced him completely from our minds and so forth. I had nothing to do with him after that. And uh, that was the saddest moment of my whole life when that happened. And um, it was interesting,
0: too, you mentioned later in the book that you could have gotten, because now you were like the sole supporter of the family, you could have actually gotten a deferment from going to the war. Yes, uh uh-huh. And your mom, like, didn't give it to you, or she knew that you wanted to go in the Marine Corps.
1: Yeah. Well, for a while, she held off, wouldn't sign the papers for me to go. See, I was just sophomore in high school and I was failing all my subjects because I was trying to hold down two jobs to help my mom and my sisters and uh, it was it was hard times it was really bad for us all but my mom held the rest of us together and and I lived through it. (laughs)
0: And then, so your mom knew that you wanted to join the Marine Corps?
1: Yeah, and uh, she fought me on it. And and, uh, one day my cousin came home, and I went to the recruiting office with him, and he signed up because he was old enough to sign. And I took the papers home to my mom, and she was at the clothesline hanging up wet clothes to be dried, you know and I put that paper in front of her. I said, this is for you to sign. I want you to sign it now, because I'm going into the Marine Corps. She laid that wet towel on the the basket, walked down there to the end of the line. I'd built her a line for drying clothes, and there was some excess wire, six-strand wire. She took that thing, and twisted it into a long whip-like thing. Came back to me, took my left hand, her left hand, and whacked me across the rear, <laughs> and I made a complete circle around it. And I stopped and glared at her, and I could see that she was shedding tears, the first tears that I've ever, I'd ever seen her shed. And that broke my heart. And... Uh, I uh, stood there for a while and she turned and walked and went into the house. And then uh, I cried, I cried hard. And so about a week later, I came home from school and she handed me a paper that she had signed for me to go into the Marine Corps. And uh, so that was the birth of my Marine Corps how old were you I was 17 Okay. Yeah. I was 17 and and uh, I couldn't pass English <laughs> and so I quit school and uh, joined the Marine Corps before and where were you when where were you when Pearl Harbor happened so that was <clears> what a year prior No, uh, I was in school, but it was a Sunday day, and Jake Rhodes, my buddy, had a little coop right there, and we had dates, and we called her big Berthers. The the little coop was too small for all of us to sit abreast of each other. So I sat on her lap, I just weighed 118 pounds, and she probably outweighed me by five or six pounds. And... uh, we heard that Pearl Harbor had been attacked and that that was a day that I learned that I was gonna be involved in a war because of that age, you know. Mm-hmm. And so. Uh,
0: How had you heard about the Marine Corps as opposed to the
1: Army or the Navy? Well, I wanted to uh, be a paratrooper And then I thought I'd go into the Army and be a paratrooper. Then I found out that the Marines had paratroopers. So I joined the Marine Corps instead, and I found me a home. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) So uh, you you leave on that train. Your mom tells you. You know, don't be a coward, don't get any tattoos, don't be a drunkard, and come home to us. These are good basic fundamental rules for a lot of people, I think, to follow. And you head off on that train to boot camp, which is right here in San Diego, California.
1: Yes, uh uh-huh. So I got through boot camp okay. uh, But my big problem, when they lined us up, we fitted out with shoes and clothing and everything, when it came to the shoes right there, they made them. And they said, son, you can't join the Marine Corps because your feet are too small. And I thought, well, gosh, he's not going to send me home, is he? And everything. I wore a size five and a half <laughs> shoe, and he said, we just don't make shoes that small. <laughs> and so I had an old pair of shoes that had worn out, should have been thrown away, and I play a lot of poker. I knew how to play poker before I knew my ABCs. Well, anyway, I carried deck cards around all the time. So when I went to Marine Corps, I had to use the whole deck, putting about three into my shoes that had holes in them, my civilian shoes that had holes in them. And, uh, and they finally, one night, uh, I'd always take the top bunk in the Wherever I went, what barracks I was in, you know. So I put my shoes on the deck under the bunk. the Next morning I woke up and there was looked like somebody had taken a car tire uh, tire and cut out soles for me. The thing was, so, uh, was about that thick, you know. So I had a pair of shoes that I could march in. <laughs> anyway, and then uh, when uh, I had. To, Cut down my dung, have dungarees, cut down, you know, because it's too big and so forth. And I had a lot of trouble because I was so small. And the other, at one time I was small enough that uh, Ralph Hall, my captain or my platoon leader, he was the first uh, lieutenant at that time, and Aunt fer- Ferris picked me as the uh, runner. And so, one night uh, we were sitting around a campfire, and uh, and I said, "Why did y'all put pick, pick me as a as a, as a runner?" And they said, "Well, you were so small, so you made a small target, and you were so fast afoot foot that you could run outrun any job in the in the world. <laughs> so that was the reason I was made a uh, a company runner."
0: So you were saying that your mom, it's in the book too, it's a great story about your mom bringing you something to boot camp, visiting you and bringing you something to boot camp.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, it wasn't exactly the boot camp. It was when I came back from overseas and I found out that there's going to be in, uh, a uh, demolition man in the assault squad. And the assault squad was composed of uh, five men with specials and uh uh i was going to be a a uh, demolition man i was supposed to carry so many pounds of demolition on my back and and on uh on front i would carry my regular pack you know and so forth and so i couldn't handle a rifle so at first i said well we'll try to get you a pistol because I couldn't handle a rifle uh, with all that weight and so forth. And uh, he said, We're going to get you a pistol. I waited around a week for a pistol and finally he came out and said, The Marine Corps doesn't have any pistols, any any left. And so I was desperate. So I called my mom. I said, Mom, find me a pistol, I'd like to have a Colt, 1911 Colt. And my mom went out and uh, looked all over town. Well, I looked all over San Diego here for a pistol myself and there just wasn't one to be had, you know. And so I called my mom and told her what I needed and she, uh, I sent her, the money I sent her $75 that I'd won in a poker game (laughs) (laughs) I sent that to her and she went around all over town looking for a pistol couldn't find one until she came to a trailer house down close to the railroad tracks with a guy that had a uh, gun shop there so she went at the house trailer and Knocked on the door, and and Mr. Armstrong came out and said, "What do you need, ma'am?" She said, "I need a pistol. What kind of pistol do you need?" She said. She took out the piece of paper that I'd written it on. A Colt forty-five, nineteen eleven, and he said, "I just happen to have one of those." And. Uh, She said, how much is it? And he said, "Uh, $200. And she said, oh, I can't afford that. He said, well, that's all I got. Why do you need such a big pistol? She said, well, my son is in the Marine Corps, and he needs a pistol. And so he said, well, this is the only one I have but $200. And... And so she backed it out of the door and went down the own. Mr. Armstrong came down and tapped her. She said, uh, he said, you say your son was in the Marine Corps and, and needs a pistol. She said, surely they can give him a pistol there. She said, no, they don't have any. And she said, well, come on back. We'll work up a deal. So she walked out with that pistol, cleaned of cosmoline, And he had his $75, and she uh, needed to get there as soon as she could, you know. So she went down to the bus station, got on a bus with a paper grocery bag in it with extra clothes, you know. And got on the bus, and 36 hours later, she got to San Diego. Now, she crisscrossed because In those days, you know, military guys had uh, priority. And she'd be in one place. They would uh, bump her off, let a guy come in and take her place. And she crisscrossed New Mexico and Arizona uh, for 36 hours. Well, we were loading up to go overseas. And uh, Cobber Darts and I... We're up on the truck with a bunch of sea bags and uh, 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 Fisher, my uh, uh, sergeant at that time, uh, was uh, sitting in the cab with the driver and everything. So we went through the gate over here at Camp Pendleton and the gate guard said, is there any Marine up there named Harvey, Fred Harvey? And Carver woke me up. I was asleep. Woke me up and said, Hey, they're calling for your names. So I looked over and I saw my mom look up at me. And I slid off that thing real fast. I came off real fast. Well, uh after a while uh uh Fisher said uh said Harvey, we gotta we gotta go. Uh, I want to let your mom sit in the seat, and I'll get up there with y'all. And so we drove down town, and was looking for a place for her to stay. We couldn't find a place anywhere. I mean, we tried every hotel and so forth. So finally, I uh, this is around 12 o'clock at night, and so, uh, I went to a policeman. I said, sir, can you tell me where we might find a place for my mom to stay, a hotel or a hotel or something, you know? And he said, well, I just don't know of any place and so forth. I'll tell you what, I'll call my wife. If your mother will stay with her, I'll call her and we'll go out there. And so the wife said yes bring her (laughs) bring her out so uh, he called the office and the police car came out and drove into the house and his wife well welcomed us with open arms you know and she stayed there three different nights and uh, and then I was able to uh fisher would let me off uh Quite a bit of the time those three days that she was here, and then he finally had to put her on the bus, and he wrote a note making it a priority she wouldn't be bumped and anything when she got home. Well, that was a story of how I got my pistol, and it was shortly thereafter that you went on.
0: You headed overseas. Yes, uh huh. And that was on a on a a formal former cattle ship Is that no, right? That that was the first time
1: I went overseas.
0: Oh, okay. Uh, so you came back in between in between. So that you got the pistol after your first time going overseas? Yeah,
1: it was uh, the second time I went overseas. Okay. But the first time I went over it was on the Bloemfontein. Okay. You want to hear about the Bloomfontein? Well, I read about it, and it's a pretty nasty story in many ways. <laughs> oh, that was a nasty <laughs> ship. It really was. But I thought that's the way it was. You know, I hadn't seen the ocean until the, I'd gotten in the Marine Corps. And so uh, they. They put us on on the Bloemfontein. And it was in a cattle ship, a Dutch, at a Dutch captain, and he was, uh, he shipped, uh, I mean, he transferred cattle from Australia over to, uh, the, uh, to the Dutch uh, holdings in the South Pacific. Well, when the war broke out, he had just dumped out a load of cattle, and when he found out that it was at war, well, he headed for San Francisco. And when he got to San Francisco, he offered it to the Navy, and uh, the Navy took it, made it into a troop ship. Now, they didn't clean that stuff up very good, you know. They shoveled it out, and they left a lot of stuff, and they just painted over it. <laughs> of course, when they started sailing, that ship would buckle in and everything, and that cow droppings just ever <laughs> for her, you know and the bunks were stacked up eight high and I was lucky I was small enough to get in there without any trouble a lot of those little guys couldn't get in and the head uh, you know in the Navy and Marine Corps the, the bathroom is called the head you know uh, the head was just a long shed from the Bow of the ship back to the uh, holdings uh, you know where the captain stood and so forth and what had happened they made a tra- uh, what would be a latrine we- a what a latrine yeah uh, uh, right there where water would flow down the thing right there then they had a pipe for you to sit on well you just sit on that pipe and then uh, do your thing and get up and leave you know well, that thing broke down, <laughs> and so here we were out at sea with no way to dispose of uh, you know the droppings. well anyway, so the Dutch captain signed this crew to set uh, out, make things on the front of the Shaba the ship, and kind of like saddles. Uh, uh, <laughs> on the side of a horse you know you just go up there and drop your pants and sit down that thing and and drop to feed the fish you know <laughs> well i was too bashful to go out there and use that because there were 13 naval nurses on that same <laughs> ship and they sit up there and I, and I held off as i was trying to hold off to the dark because i was too embarrassed <laughs> to go but finally i I had to go, so I just went up there and dropped my pants like the rest of them did. Well, you know, when you're floating along there, you're going up and down. First thing you know, your butt is in the water and it comes back out. And uh, you didn't really need toilet paper because you didn't need them because there wasn't any on there. That was a problem the whole time I was in the Marine Corps overseas was toilet paper. Oh, that was something. But... That's the way we traveled there. And uh, when you go through the, I was seasick. I was seasick all the time. They put me in the in the sick bay, and for some reason there was a box of high-hole crackers in there. I don't know what it was doing on a troop ship, but there was something on there. And so I'd eat a couple of those every hour, and they'd hide them so nobody else could get them. <laughs> And we was on that ship for twenty nine days to get to New Caledonia. And uh, one day the ship broke down. Here we are drifting out there. And we drifted for all oh, probably thirty or forty hours, you know. And we was taking bets as where we would drift to in South America. <laughs> and and they they get passed the word out that we were supposed to t- keep our life belts on at all times and keep your eyes looking out for su- submarines because we didn't have any escort. We were just out there by ourselves in a slow cattle ship, and uh, we was in real trouble, And and we drifted for 72 hours, and they finally got the engine going again. So here we are going to... Overseas, we didn't know where we were going, you know, and uh, then we got a scare that there was possibly a Jap submarine in the area, so we pulled into the nearest island we were close to, you know. We pulled in there, and I fell in love with that that island. It was uh, Tonga Tapu. And we just went in there. It was one of these things you see in the movies, you know. And we pulled in that bay and dropped anchor. And here the natives came out paddling canoes. And they had uh, coconut, uh, pineapple, a lot of fruit and stuff. They'd throw them up our to us. And, man, we fight for those things. <laughs> well, anyway, they came, came back that night and entertained us on the deck of the ship, we were sitting around there and they were they, uh, doing their dances, the hula dances, and uh, it was a beautiful island, I mean it was beautiful, and I swore up right there, I said to myself, Fred Harvey, there's a lot more in this world than Odessa, Texas, <laughs> and I'm gonna see some of it before I die, <laughs> and uh, so they put on a show, and at last they sang their island song. You know what it was? You are my sunshine. <laughs> and we pulled away from there, and we got started. Then we stopped, went back. Well, what's going on? Six guys had jumped ship. <laughs> they, they went ashore and brought them back but uh, I didn't think about jumping the ship if I thought about it I might have joined them (laughs) and so we pulled out and finally got to uh, uh, New Caledonia we'd been at sea for 29 days and uh, we was all tickled to finally get there but that ship was a hell ship you know (laughs) And uh, when we got there, they took us off the ship. And this is
0: now in New Caledonia. New Caledonia. And so you're a couple months out of boot camp at this point? Yeah. uh Okay, And so this is the first place you stop and and you're gonna basically, just for people that don't know, you're gonna get to New Caledonia and you're gonna kind of train and prepare for for going out and, and taking
1: down some islands. Yeah, well, There was two reasons we went there. We were going to farm up with uh, uh, the rest of the troops. You know, the first parachute battalion was already there. In fact, they were involved in Guadalcanal, and uh, so uh, uh, we were going down there to replace the guys. So I was uh, went to the first parachute battalion they were up 60 miles from uh, uh, the base that we came in on uh, I can't remember the base that we landed at or the port we landed at but uh, it was a capital of New Caledonia and our the parachute battalions were stationed out all about sixty miles from uh, New Yeah, New was the capital of uh, that place. And then
0: once you got, is that where you met your your that where you joined up? You're saying
1: with your parachute company? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, I was assigned to the first parachute battalion. And did you did you, if I remember correct, did you go to Guadalcanal this at this point? No, uh, we went later. When we went up to uh, uh, our first action together after Guadalcanal, was uh, uh, we were supposed to go to Bella Lavella and thing. So on our way up, there, we stopped off at uh, uh, Guadalcanal. Okay, and that's after Guadalcanal had been. Uh, uh, secured you know and so they led a scrimmage we went up to find some of the old guys that had uh, escaped uh, Japanese had, had escaped and we didn't see anything so we didn't get to shoot any Japs so we were there uh, all a couple of days and and uh, we got up for chow one morning, just about before sunup and everything. I was up at the front of the line. I'd always managed to get the front of the line. For for but, chow? Yeah, for chow. Yeah,
0: you, you mentioned throughout the book that you're a guy that liked your chow. Oh,
1: I love chow. <laughs> I was trying to catch up with the the hunger I had in the, during the Depression. Well, anyway, we was in line there. Waiting to go in to get the child, you know, and uh, then I heard a lot of laughing and carrying on back to the line. So I ran down to see what the action was, you know. And there's three bedraggled Japanese that had just come out of the line, out of the jungle, and got in line. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and an officer got came down there and that could speak Japanese, and they, they said they were hungry and everything. So they took them apart and fed them. (laughs) And they kept them there, I guess, as long as uh, they needed them. They was washing pots and pans and doing work there when we left and so forth. Mm. They got off light.
0: (laughs) And um, so as you were preparing to go, now you're working, you, you, you had a couple guys that you mentioned in the book You know, I'll start with the first one. I'm going to mention three of them. Uh, Major Fagan, Fagan, is that how you say it? Fagan, yeah. Fagan, Major Fagan. He sounds like
1: one tough customer. He was tough. I mean, he was, I was scared. I'd see him coming down, you know, the trail or anything like that. I'd jump in the jungle (laughs) keep because I was scared of him. Well, everybody was scared of him because he was tough. He just drove us. He found out the Japanese had marched uh, with full packs in a 24-hour period, marched 39 miles. He said, we're gonna beat that. And we marched 50 miles with full packs out there on New Caledonia. And we would walk up the hills and trot down the hills that came down there. And we went 50 miles. And uh, I don't know whether it's any kind of record book or anything, but we was proud of it. Yeah, and so forth. I don't know if it's a record book either, but I know it hurt.
0: Yeah. <laughs> now you also a couple, you tell a couple stories in the book about him. Um, he put he was he had no problem putting
1: people on bread and water. Oh, no problem, no problem. <laughs> oh, uh, in fact, I was put on bread and water. I had a buddy there that was. Uh, went through the parachute platoon with me right there and he nearly got us killed thing, I won't give him his name you know but he passed away several years ago but I don't want to say anything we don't want to incriminate his <laughs> actions <laughs> <laughs> well he uh, when we was going through parachute school his name was well I'll tell you his name uh, last name his name was Harmon so when we lined up alphabetically and everything we did, you know. Well, he was always right behind me. So when we went to uh, parachute school, we wound up together, you know, because of our names being real close to one another. Well, anyway, uh, now, when we jumped, the Marine Corps jumped from the plane, we dove out head first. Their theory was that when you jump out and that parachute opens right there, you kind of swang with it right there. Well, the Army jumped them out feet first and came down and so forth. So we jumped them, we jumped out head first. While we were training there in, uh, out here in Camp Gillespie, that's where the parachute school was. And... Uh, We lined up and uh, make, to make our first jump. Well, Harmon was behind me. Well, in the plane we had, we called it the Blue Goose. Now we had to borrow that from the Navy because the Marine Corps didn't own any planes itself. So we used the Blue Goose. So they took us out there in a truck, you know, the guys that had volunteered to go into the parachute school. And that truck driver drove us out there and, and uh, and the barracks and the offices and everything was at, on the top of this hill. And below was the uh, runway, and that's where the where we jumped into that area right there. That truck driver drove up there and stopped real fast. He said, they're fixing to jump. You guys want to watch? And so we all jumped out of the truck. There's about 10 or 15 of us, you know, jumped out of the truck and watched them. It flew over. Man, here they come diving out. One of them was coming down fast. He was flailing like this his parachute didn't open and so just before he hit the deck that parachute opened he had to pull out his his uh, reserve chute sh- now the reserve chute was on the front and it didn't have a pilot chute on it so when you pull a rip part you're supposed to pull out that silk yourself well it wasn't silk it was nylon well he was pulling that out just he got it filled out that he hit the deck and a jeep was on its way down there and they put put him in that jeep, put a parachute on him, got him out on the plane, the plane went up there and out he came again. And that truck driver said, any of you guys want to go back to boot camp? <laughs> and two guys got back on the truck and went back. <laughs> and I thought seriously about joining them, you know. <laughs> and uh, Yeah, that's not a good initiation yeah. into parachute jumping, yeah. that's for sure. Yeah. Well, we had to pack our own chutes. We learned how to pack chutes, and we, and every step you took at parachute school, you had to be running. If you weren't running in an officer or an NCO would catch you, you, you were in trouble, you know. So every step we took, we learned how to pack chutes, ran up and down. I got where I could pack a chute in 12 minutes. Well, one day they said, you're gonna pack a chute today and you're gonna to jump tomorrow. And I said, uh, I better take a little bit more time. So it took me 30 minutes to <laughs> do that one. Well, that night, uh, oh, what was that Indian's name? But uh, was a per- Ira Hayes. Ira Hayes. Okay. He was in the, my platoon there. You've heard of Ira yeah. Pay, His yeah. hip raised the flag yep. on the eagle. He was real quiet. And there was another Indian in there with him, and that night before we jumped, that guy jumped off and hollered gung ho, you know, and broke both of his ankles, <laughs> so that ended his parachute. But our was a, a he was a, he was a good Marine. He was quiet, you know. He never never said much. And I'd talk to him, you know, because my mom was a Comanche Indian, and I had some Indian blood, you know. And I'd tell him that, you know, and and we became close friends, but he was so quiet, you know. He, he's just a great, great guy, but he's just, just quiet. Well, you know the history of how, what he did, yeah. what happened to a poor guy. Yeah. Well, anyway, we came out, and that first jump we made, we made the jump. And when I came out, I dove out. When my chute opened, I was— standing on another chute Ish. below me. Well, it was Harmon, he should have been above me because he was coming out of there. Well, we didn't think much about it, you know. I just thought was, that's what his jumping was like. Well, the next day, we jumped again and we came up. We were tangled together and, uh, and their chutes, you know, when they're slanting up like that, air was going up too fast. You know, mm-hmm. when holding the chute, and when we hit, man, it was like a ton of bricks hitting. You know, man, it hurt and everything because that chute hadn't uh, wasn't able to. Those shoots weren't able to hold us up, so we hit the ground pretty hard. So the, the jump masters and the guy on the deck watching things thing. They said, "What happened?" and I don't know, they didn't ask anything of Harmon, you know. It's always me they looking at, you know. Well anyway, well in fact they was looking at me because I didn't even have boots on there. One time I said, where's your boots? I said, they all don't have any that'll fit me. <laughs> so they finally got me a pair, of, uh, a six size and told me to wear four pair of socks, you know what I mean. That <laughs> was the first boots I had. Well back to Harmon. Well, the next time we jump, I came out and bruised up and everything. When we jump, well, uh, I was my shoot uh, at uh, the shroud lines had chan- tangled up in my boots, you know. So I whipped out the k bar knife and cut those two strands of uh, uh, rope, you know, to let me down. Just before I hit the ground, well, I got my feet down first you know they come running over to me and what is going on there what's happening I don't know and so what had happened when my parachute when I jumped out or dove out of the thing right there I was facing the plane and my static line was playing out between my legs and so that's where my my, boot foot got tangled up in the shroud lines man they came up there and they decided I was too light to be in and uh in a parachute you know and so uh, the sergeant over there at the at the loft where we uh packed our chutes you know he and the officer would talk and they said well he's just too light and and I was standing there talking I said I said I said Y'all can't kick me out, I want to stay in this outfit. I want to stay in it. And so that sergeant, he said, why don't we put him in a Army-Navy canopy. Now the Army-Navy canopy was only uh, 26 feet diameter. And the, the, the ones we used, the nylon, the ones we used were 28, you know, just a bigger canopy and everything. So this guy took an army navy parachute, took it out and put it on a uh, all the carriage. Uh, you know, I, I forget what they call it. You know, where you folded your chute and put it on there. And so here I am with a with a parachute. You know, made out of silk instead of nylon. And uh, silk reacts lot faster than nylon does so so when that shoot opened i got a pretty good uh uh, kick out of it well when we came out and that day we were going to jump with weapons and so they gave us all a a rising gun you ever heard of a rising gun no it was about as worthless as a grease gun so we called it a grease gun it was a terrible weapon they uh, they outlawed them in the in the military right quick. Well, anyway, I had one of those, and uh, when I went out the door, well, the Harmon hit me and knocked my that rising gun down, and it went down, and stuck in the garden And they, they, uh, this was our our fourth jump, and uh, and the sergeant said. They were, they were considering just really to drop me, send me back to boot camp to be assigned somewhere else. You know, I, with tears in my eye, I begged them let me stay. You know, well, and then the, then the sergeant said, "I'm going to go up tomorrow and watch and see what is happening," and uh, so he went up there and found out what was happening. Well, here, we're coming down this white line in the fuselage of the plane, and then the white line was right there leading out the door. So we were supposed to come down and make a sharp turn and dive out. Well, I was coming down there and going out the proper way. Harmon was coming down there, and he was cutting across, and he was going through the door the same time I was, and it was knocking me against the side over there. And... And he was just knocking me out. He, he was, shooting was opening before mine was opening. And so we got that straightened out. <laughs> and, uh, and that wasn't the only trouble I had with Harmon, but that's a different story, or maybe I shouldn't bring it up here.
0: <laughs> so. You, you, uh, actually, uh, you actually talk about when you did find to get your first jump, everything went good. And you said, you know, I had never made first string in any sport because of my size. But when they pinned those wings on my chest and shoved a rifle into my hands, I'd at last made first string. With that rifle in my hands, size no longer seemed relevant. I had made the team and found a home. The Marine Corps filled all my dreams and all my needs. Harmon actually ended up getting you in trouble. Yeah. Right? While you were in New Caledonia.
1: Yeah. Well, I will not go into the pink house. I do in the book, don't I? I? I don't know. Our day off was Wednesday. First Battalion got Wednesday off, you know. They didn't let us all off at the same time because they didn't want another Pearl Harbor type thing because the Japs were still on the offensive at that time. So uh, he, uh, he got where he would go down there every Wednesday and uh, He fell in love with one of those girls, and they fell in love with, or she fell in love with him. he went in there and he didn't get the bus, but last truck going back to base, and he didn't get back in time. So he had to hitchhike, I don't know how he got there, but he got there about, oh, about an hour after roll call and everything. So when he showed up, well Fagan just put him on five days bread and water
0: fagan uh, don't uh, play around
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah well when you buy would buy something over there from the px you couldn't go in and buy one bar of candy or one can of beans or anything like you had to buy a whole box so on his third day i went went over and got me a uh joe boy now joe boy was uh, a non-chocolate, you couldn't have chocolate candy in the tropics because it'd melt, you know. So they had this nougat uh, covered with uh, peanuts and it's called Joe Boy. So I went by there one night and I opened up and I was eating one of them and I hollered at him through the barbed wire thing. He was in a tent and it was kind of in a clearing in the woods, you know. He said, oh, throw me one of those things. I haven't had anything but bread and water for three days now. I said, no, I'm not going to throw you. That's against the rules. Oh, come on, please. I would do it for you. Just couple So I looked around, took two of them out, and threw them a little line. Uh, Corporal of the Guard. <laughs> Pagan had seen me. <laughs> well, he came over and he said, put this guy in there. And uh, Aunt Ferris happened to be the... Corporal of the Guard at that time. And uh, he said, Well, we can't. We're all packed up. You know, we don't have, there's just one uh, bunk, uh, Caught. what thing you, cot in there. And the rest of them are all packed ready to go. And he said, There's no place for him to sleep. He said, Well, take that guy out and put this guy in there. <laughs> and so <laughs> the next day, I was sitting there, and I'd already had a couple of loaves of bread and water. He came by with a box of candy. I said, come on, throw me one of those things. He said, no, that's against the rules. I don't want to get in trouble. <laughs> oh. So he never did throw one over to me.
0: <laughs> Cold-blooded. Yeah. Uh, now, you were going to get sort of written up for that, um, and— Lieutenant Hall who you, you know you got you a lot of respect for I'm going back to the book here He so now you're checking in with lieutenant Hall and he's supposed to write you up and put this in your permanent record Yeah, and he says Harvey he said with a document in hand I was ordered to write you up But I can't put it in your records as all our records have been stowed away to remain here I'll have to carry this paper with me and it will surely get lost in the jungle before we get back to civilization Again, I got a knowing smile and a pat on the back now get out of here and forget what has happened get your gear in order I think we're taking a boat ride. I gave him the smartest salute possible and said. Thank you, sir I appreciate what you've done for me I think I might have skipped to my tent filled with the deep joy and the deliciousness of being a marine I Left my troubles behind me and soon got to feel the thrill of combat. I realized soon after in the heat of battle That the harsh demanding training of that major Richard Fagan Sergeant Ott Ferris and Lieutenant Ralph F Hall put us through paid off We performed well under fire Ferris and Fagan received wounds in the Battle of Iwo Jima Lieutenant Hall died in the Battle of Iwo Jima. I shed bitter tears when I heard the news of his death He was a great Marine at Iwo Fagan earned the Navy Cross As we fought for Bougainville Sergeant Ferris did some Amazing things for which he received the coveted Silver Star later at the battle for Iwo, he earned the Bronze Star and Purple Heart medals Then he went on to win his second Silver Star and Purple Heart during the Korean War Heck this guy hung around to fight in the Vietnam in Vietnam in the 1960s a Marine a Marines Marine I found serving with him a great honor one of the high points of my life even today 70 plus years later we get together from time to time what do we talk about? Of course, the war and our buddies of that bygone era. So you had—I thought that was just a great leadership story about how Lieutenant Hall just said, "Hey, you know what? We're gonna—we're gonna shred this document," and it's <laughs> not—it never happened. Yeah. And then you move to your first. Was it your first combat? Was being in Bougainville?
1: Uh, no, Bella Lavella was the first okay.
0: Uh, yeah, and. What what was uh, what was going into Bella Lavella? Bella what was it Vella Lavella
1: Vella Lavella, well you know we were island hopping over there. What we would do would evade an island, put in an airstrip, and uh, everything, and to use to hop to the next island because it didn't when we were through, we didn't nearly vacated an old island. Al- Uh, the airfield that you put in and everything. And so Vela Vela was uh, one of those stages and everything. And across the uh, bay there, I think is something like 13 miles or something, was Kolumbengera. Now that was just an island just sticking up, a volcanic island just sticking up in the ocean. And it was... uh, Oh, uh, the Jap occupied it, and uh, but we took Vella Vela and put in an airstrip there. We landed there, and that was when I had my first taste of action. Uh, we moved in to the, isle, uh, the to the jungle, and the Seabees were supposed to follow us in, you know, and start building there. Well, the CBs was a tough outfit. They were getting ahead of us, <laughs> and we'd had to show them back. So they made ask us to get on the, put snipers on the, their tractors, and that's what we did and everything. But um, then we moved, when we were moving out of the beach, well we had we're sitting out on patrol, because we hadn't uh, when we invaded, we didn't run into any japs. But we found that there were some up there, so we were going to go up and attack them before they could get down and, and work over the Seabees that were building the airstrip, you know. And so it was so hot and the jungle was so thick, we had to have uh, guys using matchets, you know, to, to chop our way through there. Well, we'd last only about 10 minutes, using those choppers to get through there. They're just big blades, you know, just using, uh, used to chop through the vines. Well, we were staggered. A guy was here, I was here, and another guy was here. And we were working our way through it. And, uh, and the Jap, uh, Nambu, opened up on us. And this Jap was up in a tree and he shot and it killed these two guys that were in this line over here, and I was over here, so he didn't get us, get it all three of us. Well, anyway, then he went after me, and I just jumped under the shreds and uh, uh, the brush and everything, and I just crawled from one place or another. And I don't think he could see me, but he was probably see the leaves and branches working. He, He was firing at me and everything, and so uh, a guy, a big guy had an A4 machine gun. You know, that's an air-cold, 30-caliber weapon, and he had an asbestos glove, and he was big enough and strong enough that he could fire a short bust at a time with it and everything, so he said, Harvey, what tree is that guy in? I said, that big one over here on the left, he said, That doesn't mean a thing. They're all big and are on the left and right. And so I said, Fire at one of them right there. Now I'll give you directions where to go. So uh, that guy fired at me, and they saw where he was shooting right there. So this guy, I wish I could think of his name, this big guy. I admired him because he was so big and strong. Well, he just saturated that thing, with that A4 machine gun. And sure enough, here came a Jap hanging out. He had a rope around his foot, and that uh, Nambu machine gun, that's the first Jap weapon I'd seen. That's the first time I'd been shot at, you know. So I remember the Nambu real well. Well, anyway, uh, that was my was my first action and man I hated those mach- Jap machine guns but if I had to go to war right now I would get me a Jap Nambu machine gun and there's a picture of it right there yeah. that weapon was something else that had a magazine that hold 20 shells and boop. And I ran across another one at Iwo Jima and that's another story and but, uh,
0: and then then you guys pretty much mopped up that first operation, and there wasn't too much resistance. No, there wasn't too much resistance. And then, the, and then you moved on. After that, was that when you headed to Bougainville? Was that the next yeah, place yeah, you we hit? Went, we went. to
1: Bougainville after that.
0: You got an interesting story in about uh, about Bougainville that kind of I think's worth uh, <sighs> might be worth talking about a little bit because it's. Kind of shows how You know war is not always what it's made out to be in the movies um, So here we're going you you were actually Speaking a toilet paper and in this particular situation you were just done getting done You'd gone to relieve yourself by a little house, and then you hear the order. I heard the order move out on the double as I stood between the house and the banyan tree buckling my belt, something in the vague misty light caused caught my eye. I stood in rapt amazement as a guy came diligently down the tree. I could see that he had only a piece of cloth around his waist. When he reached the bottom, he bent forward as if to pick up a sandal. I watched in utter wonderment as this scene played out before me just a little guy when he straightened up I stepped up and brought my rifle stock across the back of his head with a glancing blow he turned as he crumpled and landed fully on his back I looked down and to my horror found myself looking at a female instead of a male stunned and shaken by my act I choked on a sob and trembled uncontrollably what had I done as I stood there bathed in pity and compassion, all hell broke loose. The shatter and clatter of small arms fire broke the silence. Trying hard to choke back the sobs, I raced to join the firefight, glad to leave that pitiful, pathetic scene and act. An outnumbering force pinned us down all day. Although desperately busy during this time, my thoughts kept going back to the base of that banyan tree. At midday, our ammunition ran low. The sergeant ordered me back to the rear to find more. I veered from a direct path to the beach to pass by that tree of infamy. I found neither her nor her body. I quickly ran around the tree and under the house to no avail. I ventured up the steps to look inside the house. Inside it looked like an infirmary or aid station, but empty. I hoped that I had only stunned her and she had walked away from the area. After the incident, I gave a great deal of thought to that lady in the coconut grove definitely of oriental heritage I wondered her purpose there. I Thought of several possibilities. She could have served as a nurse in the Japanese Military or a resident of the island brought there by the late lever brothers soap company to work in the coconut groves Also, she might come from Korea one of the many Korean women kidnapped by the Japs to serve as prostitutes for their military No matter the reason, I hope and pray that she survived the blow to her head and the war In my life span, I've stored many many items in my arsenal of memories The memory of that day so very long ago rests among my most vivid The memorable events on that lonely beach on the far side of planet Earth have not dimmed over time nor distance It all took place because I crawled beneath a house I think I lost the last vestige of the little boy within me that day.
1: Yeah, that was really tough on me, you know. It, uh, I remembered my sisters, you know, and, and thought how terrible it would be if they were hit like that. It it stuck with me all these years, you know. I remember that little, little lady in that jungle. That was uh, another story uh, there. We were sent up our, what was the name of that beach? Cory. Cory Beach. We'd heard that the Japs uh, were uh, fixing to come up there, so they sent 1st the Battalion up there and a company of raiders up there. We went up there, left our base at about 12 o'clock, and it— it was 12 miles up the island. And when we invaded, invaded it during the night, we waited until it began to get light. Well, there was a Japanese officer came in, walked into the group. I didn't see him, because I, I was out on the flank. But it was a Japanese officer. He came down there hollering the instructions and everything. And he didn't know it was Marines that had come ashore. He thought it was, because they were building up to invade that uh, area where we were building the airstrips, you know, and so they shot him dead right there and then all hell broke loose because we were outnumbered 10 to 1. And uh, when I finished with doing my job and hurting that little girl, well, I ran to catch up with a bunch, you know, well, the first guy I caught up with was Whitey Mains, and he was in, in my company and everything. So we went on up there, and we was on the very end, of the flank there, and uh, we both had Johnson rifles, and that's all we had to protect that flank with. And that's a weak part of the line, and Hall came up there, oh, I'd say about nine or 10 o'clock. He said, uh, what are y'all doing down here? You're supposed to be up there with us. And they'd gone on up there, and we worked uh, B Company. We were with B Company, and A Company was in the middle of the of the group, you know. And so he just said, well, stay here, and I'll get, get an A-4 down here to protect this flank. You know, the flank is a weak point on the line. said, y'all protect it. Well, it was a coconut grove that we hit into, and they had a road behind that coconut grove, and those Japs were using that uh, whole material up there to invade that airstrip. And so here, Whitey and I were on the flank there, and that's what we were taking. Well, they began to send uh, planes uh, down there, and they were strafing that road uh, that we were uh, strung out along, you know. And those planes were coming hard and fast. If they hadn't come up there to protect us, they, they'd have wiped us out because there was a whole regiment of Japs are fixing to invade that deal right there. And those planes were coming just one after another. And they didn't even bother to t- put up their landing gears they just left them down and would come along strafe, and they would drop bombs along the way. And we were on the very end, we, we were afraid they was going to sh- start their shooting before they got to. We'd get out there and wave at them right there, and they'd go <laughs> by us and wave at us and start strafing. And uh, we were there all day long. And uh, and the commander down at, uh, at the air base told them that to, to, uh, uh, they're sending it up, uh, uh, crafts to take us off, and Fagin answered, no, we're not gonna be the first man uh, Marines to be pushed off of a beach. We were scheduled to be taken off at seven o'clock, and that's when we will start boarding those boats. So we were there all day long, and it was a long day. And Hall came up there a few times, and we had Johnson rifles. We didn't have the N1 rifle. We had uh, Johnson rifles, a thirty caliber uh, cylinder-fed thing. They didn't even use clips in them. And I thought it was the best weapon that I had in the the war beside the Nambu. And uh, Hall would bring us ammunition up there and then he finally come up there late in the afternoon and said, you guys make this last because we're nearly out of ammunition. And so here we were, and we was, couldn't do anything till seven o'clock. So ships, Higgins boats were out there circling, waiting for seven o'clock, I guess, because then uh, odd uh, Ferris came up and he said, now we're going to be taking off and we'll start at 7 o'clock and that's a, about an hour and a half from now. And uh, the guys next to you, they're in Company B now because of the mix-up, you know, uh, Whitey Mains and I was involved in. Well, anyway, odd uh, Ferris told us said when these guys over here, they're going to leave, and when they leave, they're going to holler and let you know that they're leaving. You count the 50 as fast as you can, and then get down to the beach. Okay, so we sit there, and we sit there. We hear these boats coming in and taking off and uh, shooting and everything on it right there. I said, Whitey, gosh, what time is it? Uh, we should be getting out of here and everything. And Whitey said hollered over at those other guys right there and they didn't answer us. So I walked over there. They'd already left and didn't call it out. So here we were, only two guys left on the (laughs) beach, I guess. And we started running. Well, I was pretty fast, so I took uh, Whitey's uh, uh, Johnson rifle and I carried both of them down there. And I still beat him down to the bus. I mean, to the... Uh, Higgins. Higgins boat, Well, it wasn't the Higgins boat, it was a... LCVP. It was a what? LCVP. LCVT, it's a heavier than the Higgins boat, and it's all steel right there. So here we are running down there and hollering, don't leave, don't leave, and everything. Well, Odd Ferris was on the deck, and uh, and the ramp on that LSV was at about a 45-degree angle because that was taking shots from the Japs. Mm-hmm. And Odd Ferris stayed down there, he and, uh, and uh, 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 Captain Hayes, he's a captain by this time, he was trying to hold us up and everything, and Fagan was on that boat. And this little coxswain on the thing right there said, We're moving out right there. We're leaving right there. Fagan said he fought his way through those guys down there, and put that pistol in that kid's hand. I said, Put this back on and blow your bleep head off. <laughs> so he put it back on there. And the guys that are around there, they're they telling us about what happened. And so here we are running and so forth. And I got down there and, and Ott Ferris took those uh, two rifles and threw them up up there into the boat. And uh, uh, Hall got them to lower it a little bit right there, uh, thing. And then uh, uh, Ott Ferris took us us by our foot, you know, and heaved us up there. And Hall pulled us on in, And I got up there and here uh, old Whitey Mains finally got there. (laughs) And... uh, (laughs) That's how we got off the island. uh, But you
0: held the line until 7 o'clock. Yeah. As you were ordered. Yeah.
1: Yeah. uh, It took about 30 to 40 minutes, I guess, to get everybody off there. And we we were the last two to get off the island. And uh, I'd been on the beach before at night, and I didn't want to be on the beach again in Japanese territory.
0: Now, once you got back on the boat, um, or you got back out um, now the next thing to do is prepare for UO.
1: Well we got back uh, uh, they took us out we got back on a destroyer and was heading back in uh, to uh, Empress Augustus Bay that was on Bougainville that's where we invaded to set up the a, a, airstrip you know to attack New Guinea but well, anyway uh we got the word uh I forget exactly when it got it that, that, that breaking up the paratroopers we was coming back to the States. Oh, okay. And, and so we got back to the States and was integrated into the fifth division.
0: Oh, okay. Well that's interesting that you so that this is when you told the whole story about your mom coming to bring you forty five, this is when this is
1: now happening.
0: Yeah. Okay. They, that one. And did you get? You guys just sailed back to America?
1: Yeah, we came on back to America. We was on Liberty ships. Okay. And uh, and they got uh, got us back to Pendleton, and uh, we got a little leave. I don't know how long it was. It might have been thirty days leave. You know, and and we started forming up in the fifth division and that's when I uh, when we got back I was uh, I had what they call a, a, the crud you know I broke out all over my body it's just like having an athletes foot on your whole body mm-hmm. and uh, so they brought us back and uh, and another story that I, might, I might throw in here we were stationed over there at uh, Camp Pendleton and uh, we lined up one morning to go in t- to Chow you know it was still about half dark you know and we were standing there and and uh, Ferris is out in front and there's a a group come marching up there it turned out to be women and uh, odd fair said, well man this this uh, this man's outfit is going to going to pot. We have dogs in there and then we have this group in here and everything now we got women in here this, uh, he's just shaking his head and we heard a, heard a guy up here said. Fire two for effect. Another guy down here hollered back, bam, bam. (laughs) And those women nearly broke ranks, you know, (laughs) going after those guys. And I found out what bam meant. (laughs) That meant broad-ass Marines. And they didn't go for that. (laughs) So they they just wanted to break ranks and come after them. But... uh, that was when I first found out that there were women in the marine
0: Corps, <laughs> and so now you're preparing at this point you're preparing to go back overseas you're with the fifth the, the fifth marines yeah 5th uh, division or sorry fifth division
1: we was in the twenty sixth marines got it, got it, and
0: is this when you is this when you met Bazelon back here in california
1: uh, yeah i i his group was over there at the child line one time, and several of the guys said, "There's Massalone. There's Massalone." Of course, he was my hero too, you know. <laughs> so, just as soon as we got there, line up to go into the child hall, like sneak over, there, and I said, "Sir, can I, sh- I shake your hand?" He certainly did that. He shook my hand and went back. And that was my experience with Massalone. Now, Cabrera had told me quite a bit about Barcelona because they were. He was about how far did he say we yards. Thirty yards from Barcelona when Barcelona was earning his uh, Congressional Medal of Honor. You know, he was the first enlisted man to be awarded the Medal of Honor in in the Marine Corps in World War II. And uh, and then. Uh, you know, he came back. He was in parades and oh, bond drives and so forth. And he had it made, but he wanted to get back to, to the Marine Corps and work with the Marines groups again. So we joined up and came back, and he got killed at Iwo Jima.
0: Now, wasn't—and was wasn't, uh, and we'll get to that for sure—wasn't— um. Well, did I read that Cobber was actually Chesty Puller's runner?
1: Yeah, uh-huh. In Guadal- was that in Guadalcanal? Uh, Guadalcanal, yeah. <laughs> he was talking about Guadalcanal all the time, you know. And I'd never heard of uh, Chesty Puller until Cobber started telling about it and everything. And uh, and Cobber loved that. All, all the Marines loved old Chesty Puller. <laughs> and... uh I'd like to have served under him, but I I served under some good guys. Uh, Fagan was one of them, he was, you know, he wasn't little like uh, Chester Puller was, but he was an efficient leader of men right there.
0: And then what did he, so you're back home in America, for how long are you back home for, getting ready to head back over?
1: Well, let's see, it wasn't wasn't too long, you know, uh, I had to go to, go over there. I told you I, was, I had to go to the hospital and be uh, treated for, we called it Japanese crud, no Chinese crud, and it was just breaking out, you know, kind of like, I always thought it was kind of like athletes' foot over with their whole bodily. And the only treatment they'd put some kind of blue medicine on us and everything. And so I was. Over here in the Bal- Balboa Hospital for well, nearly a month before I was released from there. Before I got rid, re- there was a lot of us in that same position, you know.
0: And then back on another ship to head back
1: overseas. Well, we trained over here for a couple of months, and then we uh, we was trained up for to go overseas and we made a uh, uh, practice invasion of one of the little islands off of, off of here. And we invaded it, you know, practicing. And uh, and when we got there, we lined up on the beach and we kept sitting there waiting to be told to move on in or something like that. We sat there and sat there and everything. Finally, the officers came out of the and told us said, hey, we're going back on the ships we're heading overseas again and so we went back aboard ship and went over here came over here to Camp Pendleton and started getting ready to go back overseas again and that's when I asked my mother to find me a pistol and that's when she she came over. And then what you do more training in Camp Tartar? that's the big island of Hawaii? Yeah. Okay. The camp was called Camp Tarle. So we trained there. And I was, that's when I was assigned to an assault squad. And uh, I was a demolition guy in that thing. And that was quite an experience. And uh, let's see. Then we trained and got ready to go to to uh, Iwo, and while we were training there at Camp Torba on the Big Island, you know, they'd line us up every Tuesday—no, I mean Wednesday—and give us two cans of Lucky Lager beer. Well, I didn't drink right there, but Carver loved that beer, <laughs> and so I would give my two to him. And he would take and hide those and drink his two with the boys, you know. And he swore me to secrecy. Don't you tell anybody that I got to. So when he hit the island of Iwo Jima, he was carrying 14 cans of beer. Well, anyway, on the way over there.
0: Actually, there's a picture in your book and you got him with a little demo satchel on, but you say (laughs) there's no demo in that satchel, it's all beer.
1: Yeah, beer. And he threw away his uh, gas mask and had four cans of beer in that gas mask. uh, Oh, that's
0: what it was, gas mask container.
1: Bag, you know. Well, anyway, uh, we heard on the ship. We listened to Tokyo Rose. You know, we like to listen to her because she... Played good music, you know, and she was supposed to be breaking our mor- morale now, but she was helping our morale. <laughs> well, she said, well, I hear that the Marines, the, she always said, well, they, I heard that the little Marines are going to be hitting one of our islands soon. And uh, she said, they better bring their gas mask. And we heard that, you know. And I said, copper, what you going to do? I'm going to shoot you. <laughs> and so they did didn't you, use gas gas on us, thank goodness.
0: Did you, uh, st- when do you find out back then, when did you find out, hey, the target is Iwo Jima, that's where you're going? W- when did you start getting that briefing and know where you're actually heading? Was that once you're on board the ships?
1: Yeah, we, we were on the board ship before we, well, we got aboard ship and We sailed around and we went over and made a couple of practice landings in those islands in uh, Hawaii, you know. And so we went ashore. uh, uh, We anchored out at Pearl Harbor, you know, and they gave us three or four hours leave off the ships, you know, so there's a group of us together. We was down in town here in in Hawaii. This is not Hawaii though, is it? <laughs> <laughs> Close well anyway enough. <laughs> anyway, we were off down there and and one of the guys in my group was walking around and and gawking at everything, you know, on the island and and this guy named Lucas that was in my group when we was walking around, he looked up, he said, There's my cousin over there and so we went across the street and it was uh, uh, Lucas, his cousin, you know, what was his name? Jack Lucas. Jacqueline Lucas, you know. And so he stayed with us and walking around there and everything and, and we said we gotta go back to the ship. And so we went back to our ship and. Jacqueline Lucas was still with us and when he went aboard, we got aboard he went in and checked in. He was on there about three days out. I said, uh, I was talking to the the other Lucas, you know.
0: So was he a civilian? Was Jack, was the cousin a civilian or was he a, another Marine? Or?
1: He was another Marine. Oh, okay. Jacqueline he, Mar- Lucas was another he, Marine. He received and them so them. he just went aboard with us and uh, And he was there for about three days. And I said, you better take your cousin over there and tell him that he's not aboard this ship where he's supposed to be with his outfit. He was going to be a replacement in a 1st Division. But he wound up in the 5th Division. What was it? In the 26th Marines? Yeah, he was in the 26th Marines with us. And... uh, he uh, he got hurt, he threw himself on a hand grenade and, and, or two hand grenades and saved him, his buddies, you know. And he got the Congressional Medal of Honor. Hmm. You've probably seen or heard of him, because he, and uh, he was from uh, Mississippi. I forget the name of the town. And I just I, I was going over to see this guy and he was in Georgia. And I uh, went through that town, and and I got past it. So I said, I'll just go back there and see old Lucas. And so I turned around. As I turned around was going back, I heard on the radio that he had passed away during the night. And that was... Uh, Last I've seen or heard of him, you know. Then, um,
0: so you finish up your training in Hawaii. Now, is your next stop going to be Iwo? Yeah, Iwo, yeah. Uh Did you guys guys know, did the intelligence that you got paint the picture that Iwo was going to be a really, really hard fight? Did you guys know that going in?
1: No, we didn't. We had no idea what was just another island. But when, I, when it got light and I looked around, saw all those battleships and, and just.
0: So well, you weren't any more nervous for that? You just thought, well, I'm going to go do what I've done the last few times?
1: No, I was scared to death. <laughs>
0: Fair enough.
1: Well, you know, Odd uh, Ferris and Captain Hall, I was their runner, and I was telling them before I'd ever seen any action, I said, I don't know how I'll be when we see action. I'm afraid I'll be scared to death and everything. And Captain Hall said, uh, that's what you want to be. You want to be scared to death. He said, you should be scared half to death. And You know, there's no meaning to that, being scared half to death, because I was just scared half to death a lot of times, you know, and I'm still alive. <laughs> But they said, "When you're scared, when fear takes over, it dumps adrenaline into your brain and into your muscles and you react and everything. And I know that's what happened to me, because when I got hurt, I was I knew what was going on and knew what I had to do, but I was still just scared as I could be, and uh, that's what saved me, I think.
0: Um. did we already did you already get had you already been wounded at this point before you were you wounded in any of the other uh, oh no huh. so you're still you're still as lucky as they come right at this point
1: yeah I, I wasn't wounded at all now Cobbery had uh, been wounded before we hit Iwo. he had been wounded at uh, Guadalcanal and uh, he got uh that night, that Barcelona was uh, did his thing, and he was oh, about thirty or forty yards from Barcelona on that line, you know, mm-hmm. and the shell hit him, so they took him off, and he had uh, a lot of those guys got malaria, and he had malaria real bad, and they w- took him to uh, Australia, and there was a ship. They're going back and he was so with that, that wound that, that they hadn't been able to treat it because the Navy took off with all the, the uh, medical gear and everything. So he actually didn't see a doctor until he got back to Australia. And uh, so he went back, to, got back to the States and he wouldn't take a discharge. And they sent a corpsman back with him, you know. And he just put on a merchant ship, it was going back. It wasn't a Navy ship at all, a merchant ship it was going back. And that corpsman said, Cobber, there's, they're sending you home to die, and uh, they're going to discharge you. And uh, so Cobber. He said he didn't know whether to believe that corpsman or not, but they sent him up to uh, Oregon, and uh, there's they had a balloon station up. By, you know they put big balloons up in the air with on cables. You know to protect areas. You know uh, military areas that the Japanese would. Probably shoot if they tried to invade us. So he got in with uh, Cross, Bill Cross up there at that time, and a guy named Horsefly. He Horsefly, I can't think of his name, but he's from Wichita Falls, and we nicknamed him Horsefly. <laughs> <laughs> he was always talking about horses. Well, anyway, uh, they were up our garden a naval base at Tillamook, Oregon. And they was trying to get back to the uh, fleet marines, you know, and they wouldn't send them. So they was doing things that they shouldn't be doing. They wrecked a jeep, and that, was, that brought it to a head, and they said, you're going back to fire to a rifle company. So that's the way he got back in. To a rifle company.
0: yeah there's, that's where you want those guys that are yeah. out wrecking jeeps put them right back in a rifle company <laughs> yeah
1: <laughs> well uh, I'd uh, that was when I was put in the hospital where the, the, the Chinese crud and and lost uh, contact with my outfit and so forth and I wind up with uh, uh, Nails Copeland and uh and the barracks over there that was nearly empty. And so uh, I went over there and checked in, and uh, uh, Copeland was the sergeant in charge. And he was the only guy in the whole barracks. And I said, where is everybody? He said, well, they just emptied out. We were waiting to fill up again. He said, just go down there and find a bunk anywhere in the end. I said, well what room do you want me to be in? Well, the lower floor, they said, there's not three or four guys down there anyway, just take any, any bunk you want, you know. So I fooled around there and ate supper and everything and, and got in in the bunk, hung my uniform on the end of the bunk on a hanger, and, uh, and I was sound asleep. And about 10 o'clock, lights went on, and all these guys were hollering and singing and everything right there. I said, You guys knock it off and turn out that light. Who said that, big boy? <coughs> Who said that? Well, I said, I said, I get those lights turned off. And here he comes over, Where are you? Where are you? <laughs> So he come down there, he was going to fight me. So I jumped off that bunk, I was mad enough to to fight anybody. So here he come, he was not much bigger than I was, you know, because he had been hurt, you know, and everything. And he saw my uniform and I had my ribbons on there and everything. Hey, you're a combat Marine, welcome aboard! (laughs) (laughs) So he said, come on over here, we got some... uh, uh, Said, some sandwiches and some beer and so forth. Come on over here and join us. I said, I'll eat a sandwich so I don't drink beer. And so that's how I met Cobber-Dart. <laughs> and uh, we'd go on liberty together. And, and they liked their booze. And, uh, and Hossfly liked his booze, too. And he, he drank pretty heavily. So it wound wind up. I didn't drink, so I happened to take care of horsefly, <laughs> and they would, had dates, and he and Cross, uh Cobber and Cross would go off to somewhere, and I had to take uh, care of uh, horsefly. Well, we we were out in Olive Grove or someplace here in close to San Diego, I guess. Well, it's closer to L.A., I guess. And we, I couldn't find a taxi or anything. and I didn't know what to do. I couldn't find a place to stay with him and everything. So there was an all-night movie going on showing porno films. <laughs> <laughs> so we went in there and we both went to sleep. Woke up the next morning, films were still showing, so I got him out. We finally got home and, or back to camp. and. Uh, that was my experience with Hosply. <laughs> uh Horsefly was killed at Ewo and uh Cobber and and uh, Cross were wounded too. Uh let's see, I in the book I told how Cobber was wounded, didn't I?
0: Yeah, you did. That's uh that's you wanna 30... hear that now? Y- yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean you you hit the beach at I mean, let's let's just take it from you. You hit the beach at at, at Iwo, yeah. And I mean, you weren't the landing at Iwo relative to some of the other landings that the Marine Corps had done at this point was. Well, uh, I mean, what was your what was your
1: well before Iwo the Japanese always tried to stop us before we got to the beach, at Iwo they let us get on the beach right. and that's when they really opened up with everything they had, you know and and that uh, and was more effective than trying to stop us before we got to the beach. Well, we were on the beach, and and a lot of officers and NCOs were killed, you know, off the beach. So here we are laying on the beach, and, and it sloped, and guys were laying down on that thing. And when those martyrs, those shells were coming in like land. Raindrops, when they would hit, and this it, it, it explosion goes out and up, you know. Well, it we was all laying on the ground, and that was just inviting those shells to come in close to us, you know. And and so, cover said we got to get off this off this beach. So we started trying to get, hollering, get off the beach, run. So we ran, man. I ran, and and first thing know were beach on the other side. That's when I realized we were on a little island. <laughs> and, uh, and so we got over there and and uh, I heard that Hall had been killed on the boat. And I cried because I loved that man. I mean, he treated me like a son. And Ot Ferris had been wounded too. But uh uh Hall got off right on the beach in one of those shells that got him. And I was, uh, we would got over there, and, and it wasn't, they weren't firing in that area, so we spread out, waiting for somebody to come or to take over, you know. We didn't know what to do. So I was laying there propped up against a deal, and I heard a shot real close to us and everything. I looked around, and... Uh, and I couldn't see anybody shooting, you know. And then I looked over about 20 or 30 yards, there a piece of tin raised up, and a rifle come out, shot some, made another shot. So I told a guy over next to me, and he had a riot gun, we called him. It was a 12-gauge shotgun with just a few balls in the, uh, uh, Cartridge, you know I said come on follow me. He said where are we going? I said we're going to go over and have some fun So I said there's a sniper in this hole under this piece of tin I'm gonna raise that up and you just shoot just shoot in there And so I raised that and a Jap looked up there, and that guy cut loose with that shotgun about that far. What a mess that was <laughs> That guy had never seen action before with that had a shotgun. He threw up <laughs> And uh, but that's that's the first real thing I did on uh, on the
0: You know, a couple of things that I wanted to just real quick ask about. One of them was you, you describe in the book how the ground was literally hot from like the lava and it was uncomfortable to lie down
1: on. Oh, you couldn't lay on it. It's the steam heat coming from. Up through that volcanic ash, you know they keep talking about the sands of evil Jim. I wasn't sand; that was <laughs> it was ash, volcanic ash, and it was like BB size deals, and it not
0: sand. <laughs> yeah, and it was literally too hot to lay down on in, in yeah. a lot of places.
1: But it, it was too cold. I was
0: you, I was gonna say, you know, in the military, we always get the worst of both worlds. Yeah, and you, and it was too cold at night.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was cold at night. You needed something over you, so we'd lay something on the deck, you know, box or cardboard or extra blankets or something, just to get off the thing, <laughs> and. Then you put a poncho over, and that would hold the heat to keep you warm, but it wouldn't scald you, no. Yes. And then
0: what about the uh, the uh, razor razor grass? I've heard about
1: that. Let, let me up. tell you what I heard about. Uh, we heard about the razor grass. Uh, uh, MacArthur decided he wanted to use paratroopers in the jungles of New Guinea. And so they decided to send in a regiment, I forget how many were sent in, and uh, they took pictures of where they wanted to land in the jungles, you know, and they found this place, that grassed in area and uh, no trees in that part there and so forth, ideal place to land. So they jumped in there and it was that razor glass, 12 feet high. <laughs> And they had guys all cut up on it, ran all the parachutes, and just that grass was terrible. And uh, two of them were killed in the jump, and, and uh, a couple of them landed in the jungle, you know, and were hurt bad, badly. And then they told us two guys were never heard of or seen again. They never. Then they had to march out because they couldn't land a plane plane in the jungle to take them out and it took them six weeks to get back to their base and they had to be uh, uh, you know fed along the way they had to parachute stuff into them and so forth so that's when the Marine Corps said hey we're not using these paratroopers (laughs) in the jungle so that's when they brought us back to the states and put us in the uh, now uh
0: how long was it after you guys landed that John Basilone was killed?
1: Well, as well as I can remember, I guess it's the first day. Yeah, that's because I was. I had to go back and get some TNT, and and the guy was with me. He had to get some napalm. You know, he was a flamethrower, and uh, we saw this group of guys over there, and and. Uh, and a guy giving the last rites to someone. I said, What's going on here? And this guy said, "Barcelona just was just killed." And uh, it was a sad moment for me because he, like all the other Marines, he was a hero to us all, you know. And uh, that was bad. And then I heard that. Hall had been killed. And I cried again. I cried unashamedly, you know, because they—they they, they meant a lot to me, you know. And uh, uh, I just found out where Hall was buried. You know, he didn't evidently didn't have a family. I mean, a wife or anything like that. And I couldn't find out where he he was, you know, where he'd been buried or anything. And this girl that found this thing for me, she was, her name was uh, uh, Liberty Phillips. And I'd been trying uh, for 20 years to find this guy, you know, and what happened to him and everything. And I told her my problem and three days she had this magazine on the way she found out the computer you know what what it was all about and I was amazed at that and then uh, she found out that Hall had been buried in uh, well at first at Evil, they got so many dead that the hospital ships couldn't take them and so forth so they had to do something with the bodies, so they begin to bury them there, and they stayed there temporarily for s- several years, and uh, brought them back to the states, and uh, he was buried at uh, no one claimed his body, and he was buried here in, I mean, in Hawaii at the Punch Bowl, I think mm-hmm. it was, mm-hmm. and I'm going to go over there someday to visit his grave because possibility, you know, I found a second cousin to him, he's a, he uh, works with the uh, symphony orchestra, orchestra in Cincinnati, and he didn't, uh, he never met Ralph, but he just heard his second cousin, and he didn't know anything about kin folks or anything hmm. to him. Hmm
0: you know as we uh progress through the the battle here um you wrote about it obviously here in the book and i think uh this this description here is worth reading so i'm going to go you're out on patrol you're trying to get back to friendly lines daylight's coming and Here we go. I brought up the rear when we took off in a low moving dog trot Because lights coming so you're you're trying to make some movement here. Yeah, we had not gone far when From within five yards of my five o'clock position I heard the bolt action on a machine gun declaring the operator had braced it for firing I'd heard this harbinger of death before it stood as one of the hard lessons I'd learned in the jungles during the Solomon Islands campaigns I recognized this telling sound of a nambu a Japanese light machine gun this deadly weapon could spit out a clip of 20 cartridges in less than two heartbeats damn I hated that nasty little 25 caliber weapon at that first metallic sound. I shouted hit the deck I landed on the ground at the same instant that a short, short burst of gunfire ripped through the air just inches above my head I lay so flat on the deck that I could have crawled under a snake's belly for Joe, the guy in front of me, luck had played out. He had taken luck had played out. He had taken one or more slugs in the back. The other man ran helter-skelter toward our lines. His headlong dash grabbed the attention of the Nambu and it continued to spit short bursts at this hustling marine. While this happened, the adrenaline and sense of reasoning within me worked in tandem, each feeding off each other. My situation was critical. I lay in the Japs backyard, my position exposed with only my pistol to defend myself. I took a quick peek at the inner body seven or eight yards ahead of me. Seeing no movement, I reckoned Joe had bought the farm. He carried an M1 rifle. To survive this untenable fix, I needed that rifle and a position of concealment. I knew that the Nambu's clip held 20 cartridges and the gunner fired in short bursts of three to four bullets. I figured he had only a burst or two left. He had one. When the clip played out, it ejected. The sharp, tinny sound signaled me, me to move, and move I did. I came out of that prone position like a bolt of lightning. Man, in that span of 8 yards, I could have beaten Jesse Owens. My plan was simple. I'd race by, pick up pick up on a dead run and try and make it to the line of boulders about 20 yards beyond. Damn about a third about on about the third step I saw Joe move slightly the plan had changed I opted to take him instead when I got there I grabbed the back of his collar utter panic poured raw adrenaline into my engines I could never have dragged him that far fast otherwise the rocks as a safe haven no longer stood as an option we couldn't make it that far out out of gut-wrenching terror I reacted on impulse not rooted in thought or reasoning with Joe now in tow we moved into a slight depression in the volcanic ash no more than a shallow dip it had to do as duty it had to do duty as shelter for the time being what a poor place to defend and it offered very little in way of protection but nothing else showed any more promise by instinct I hit the deck my timing proved perfect the rattling peal of gunfire passed within inches of our heads well i figured we were safe for the time being then problems began to escalate faster than i could resolve them so this is a bad situation <laughs> you're in right now man and then you look down and you see there's a thermite grenade that's that's that he's got on his gear that joe has on his gear and it looks like it's been shot or it's been hit with a glancing bullet and it looks like that thing could go off at any time as well. Not only that, you got the Nambu being reloaded. So from there, you, I think you stick Joe with some some, uh, some morphine, and you kind of hold station. How long were you in that little depression in volcanic ash
1: waiting? Well, we estimated it was about six and a half hours that we were in that – the deflation and the volcanic ash. And it was kind of a slope and then a depression, and and the bullets would hit at that above us, you know. That was as low as you could get, you know, and we were safe at that as long as we stayed down.
0: And on top of all that, you start receiving friendly fire from mortars. Mortars start going off.
1: Oh, yeah, they were. That was just normal, you know. They were throwing a lot of mortar shells in there, and uh, and the ships were firing the heavy stuff, but not right in that area where we were. Right and
0: uh What do you think, what prevented the Japanese from maneuvering on you? Were you just holding that position to the best of your ability, throwing grenades and whatnot?
1: Yeah, that's the only thing we could do. I couldn't move, so I just had to. Hope that they didn't come, and then when they uh, gave out hope, well, I, I was prepared. I had the pistol. I was going to make sure that we didn't take, wouldn't take them prisoner, you know. Because at uh, Vella La Vella we were on a patrol, and uh, a platoon of us. And uh, we met some Japs, and uh, one guy was hurt, and we didn't know he was hurt. We fell back a little bit, and uh, then we realized that this guy, his name was Joe something. I can't think of his last name now. And the Japs had captured him, and we dug in for the night, and... uh, uh, they begin to torture him. And, uh, and he was, you know, screaming and everything. And our officers said, don't move, don't move. We can't help him. They're just trying to get you in position. Don't move, don't move and everything. We sit there and listen to him into the, into the night. And in the morning when it got light, you know, we went in after him. And he was tied to the base of a tree with his penis cut off and it was in his mouth. And they'd taken strips of skin and pulled it off that long it Just really tortured him, something terrible. And uh, we, when I, we found out that they were royal Manchurian Marines you know the Japanese had in Manchuria had a colony up there and they were bigger than the regular Japanese they might have been Chinese and uh, but uh, they were big guys and uh, and we got got back at them there were about 10 of them I guess in that group and we finally caught up with them but that poor guy suffered, and it was hard not to jump up and go, but that's what they wanted us to do, you know, to come out of those holes. Because once we got in a foxhole at night, we were not supposed to move for any reason. If you had to use the toilet, well, you use, dug a hole in your hole, and uh, and those holes in the jungles, would water would seep in them overnight, and you're constantly... Using your uh, tin cup to take water out, throw it out. Fighting in the jungle was was terrible. It was really terrible. You know, the conditions were bad. Uh, the mosquitoes were bad. Just jungle fighting. I hated that. And you didn't get that at Iwo Jima, you know. I don't remember seeing a mosquito or having a mosquito bite in uh, uh, the Iwo Jima.
0: And th- with that in your mind, there's no way that you were going to get captured.
1: You were going to no, fight to your I wasn't going to be captured. I, went, I was ready to uh, take uh, Joe out and myself because I didn't want him to suffer like that either and of course I I didn't tell him that I was gonna shoot him but uh, I was ready to do it
0: you spend the whole day there and, and I'm going back to the book as the long lonely hours ticked away thoughts ran the gauntlet of my mind early in the wait, I resolved to go down fighting I considered surrender out of the question and never an option I had heard and seen the results of the enemy's treatment of prisoners. No words can describe the pain and suffering the Japs laid on a person before permitting him to die. While the political correctness might, these days might frown on calling them Japs, I'll call them anything I please. My buddies and I have that right. We have earned it. Yes, when a showdown came, I intended to see that the enemy didn't take me or the Marine lying next to me alive. As my longest day neared the halfway point through the din of battle I heard my name called Damn the voice of Bullfisher my platoon sergeant boomed over the other noise he had brought in a combat patrol to find us Now you you kind of link up and he's trying to figure out where the Nambo is Nambu is located We see you now throw I did and the Nambu answered giving away its position The platoon laid down a withering barrage of small-arms fire putting the Nambu company out of business Peter Adam got to me first along with several other guys He directed them to put Joe on the stretcher and sent them on their way He said he he said let's get you out of here. I'll cover you I Got set to make a run for it, but as an afterthought I told Pete that I wanted to pick up Joe's rifle I took one last look at the shallow defilade in the sands of Iwo Jima what a lifesaver the dearest plot of ground that I ever occupied Joe and I owed our lives to it in a state of rage Pete said we would have found you sooner but ski came back a blithering idiot he refused to go back to show us the way to you guys he reported you dead some of the guys wanted to shoot him the bull sent him under guard to be taken off the island And now I'm going to uh, read a an award citation. The President of the United States takes pleasure in presenting the Silver Star Medal to private first class Thiel F. Harvey Jr., United States Marine Corps for services set forth in this following citation: for conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity. While serving with Company C, 1st Battalion, 26th Marines, 5th Marine Division in action against enemy Japanese forces on Iwo Jima Volcano Islands, 20 February 1945. When his three-man patrol, which was sent out to establish contact with the adjoining company, was ambushed by heavy fire from an enemy machine gun and one of the men was seriously wounded, Private First Class Harvey dragged the fallen Marine under heavy fire to the shelter of a nearby hole. Remaining with the wounded man while his companion went for aid he held off the hostile forces with his rifle and hand grenades until the arrival of the rescue party Then exposing himself to enemy fire and directing accurate heavy fire on the Japanese position He successfully covered the evacuation of the casualty By his initiative courage and unselfish devotion to duty He undoubtedly saved the life of his comrade and upheld the highest traditions of United States Naval Service. For the President, John Sullivan, Secretary of the Navy. Don't really know what to say after reading that, sir. Oh,
1: (laughs) Uh, well, that was a long day for me, but uh, I didn't think I needed a reward. I was just doing what Marines are taught to do you know and uh, I was surprised when they pinned a medal on me
0: you know you talked a little bit earlier about what it was like at night and I I thought this was a really good section of the book here's the way we handled the nights on the front line once darkness set in everyone went to his foxhole order said no one left the hole for any reason As I pointed out, we ceded the night to the enemy. From caves and tunnels within our lines and units, these adversaries infiltrated our positions. They sought to come into our holes and kill with knives, bayonets, bayonets, or guns. Some simply moved in close enough to toss in a hand grenade if they found the occupants on the alert for them. So we declared open season on anyone moving around above ground. To combat this type of warfare, Each foxhole comprised more or less a mini fortress within itself the man on watch with weapon ready Sat near the top of the hole so he had a panoramic view of his surroundings This proved vital as the deadly nocturnal infiltrators came in from all directions While on watch you had to stay mentally alert clear-headed and responsive to any movement near your position a moving shadow in the night presented a target to challenge with gunfire I had the first two-hour watch. When tired, sleepy, hungry, scared, lonesome, and homesick, a two-hour watch seems like an eternity. The constant booming of incoming and outgoing cannon blasts filled the night air. Intermingled with the ear-splitting blasts came the prevailing rattle of machine gun and rifle fire. Interwoven with the blare and the clamor of these machines of war, you heard desperate human utterances filled with all the emotions that life allows. When your watch ends, the night calls on you to sleep. Sheer, debilitating exhaustion will put you to sleep, usually a restless, troubled slumber. I'm gonna continue on. In the deep of the night, after my second round of Sentinel duty, a staccato of pistol fire at point-blank range startled me awake. I leaped to my feet at full alert. I could see Masia Crouched up beyond the dividing ridge in a hoarse whisper. I asked what's up? He answered we have a visitor. Did you get him? I don't think so where on your side Then I heard it the dreaded sound of metal striking the wooden stock of a rifle a Japanese grenade activates by whacking its firing pin against a solid object this whack ignites a fuse that burns for seven seconds before detonation Beyond the rim of my hole, hidden in the darkness, an enemy soldier had to drop on me. I had no options or defense for the inevitable. Then I saw it coming in a looping arc toward me, a harbinger of death. The burning fuse gave off a radiant sparkling light like a kid's sparkler on the 4th of July. I had to get it out of the hole before it exploded. With a sense of urgency, enhanced by stark terror, I cupped both hands together, I caught it in mid-air, and shoveled it over the rim of the hole out of harm's way. Sadly, the rapid, rapidly burning fuse did not give me time to scoop the missile back in the direction from whence it came. Masia had my pistol, else I could have scrambled to the top of the hole and possibly got some shots off at the adversary. But I could only crouch and wait. The interval didn't last long as out of the darkness came a notifying sound telling us they had armed another grenade and sent it on its way. However, this grenadier showed some smarts. He held the grenade for about two seconds before tossing it. This delay gave me only five seconds to do my thing. Out of anxiety, I reacted too quickly and bobbled it. As I hit the deck, I kicked it at the same time throwing up my arms instinctively to protect my chest and head. The kick and the explosion occurred simultaneously. My feet and legs took most of the shrapnel and volcanic ash hatched by the blast. I fell to my butt to a sitting position on the slanting side of the hole. I felt very little pain in my lower limbs but my head throbbed with the mother of all headaches. I had a deafening ringing in my ears accompanied by excruciating pain. I couldn't feel or move my legs. I sat there stunned deaf and trying to recollect my notions. Another grenade landed within inches beside me. Without thought or reason I hoisted my hips to come down on the glittering missile. This witless act placed the right cheek of my buttocks on the device. My weight pushed the grenade into the loose volcanic ash which absorbed a great deal of the energy generated by the blast. Now this one really laid some hurt on me. I knew that I had to get some help quick like or I might never leave that pit alive. Help! I realized sat about 25 yards away. I couldn't stand or even feel my legs so walking or even crawling exceeded my my options. Dragging myself with my elbows and hands appeared my only option. Getting to the top and out of the hole took just about all my strength. Kind of like swimming upstream in the waters of a flood of a river at flood stage. At the top of the hole I lost it. I either fainted or out of futility acceded to death I Know not which lying there in that state of oblivion an ethereal Entity began to take form in my mind's vision out of this ghostly apparition. I Came face to face with the voice of my mother She commanded Sonny you wake up and get to those who can help you don't you dare give up We all love you and need and you need to return to us. And then my former football coach, Joe Coleman, appeared. And he said, Harvey, you sorry little shit, get off your dead ass and move out. There's hell to pay, and you gotta pay it. I ain't ain't having none of your quitting. Now hustle, else I'm kicking your skinny butt. When the old coach spoke, It came out as demanding commands. You listened and you reacted. You know, I reached deep inside myself and find the strength and power to drag my failing body the last few yards to help and safety. Thanks, Coach Joe. At the brink of the hole, I came to a halt to alert those inside of my presence. Before exposing myself to possible friendly fire, I called out, Sam, this is Harvey and I'm hurt bad. I'm coming in. Now don't shoot. So, three grenades thrown at you in your
1: hole. Fear saved me.
0: You were able to throw the first one
1: back. Well, I just kind of shoveled it back. I didn't actually catch it. I just shoveled it out. It just struck my hand. And I got it out of the hole completely, but not where I should have. I wanted it to go back toward the guy that had thrown it, but it, that didn't happen.
0: And then the second one, you bobble it a little bit, lands at your feet.
1: Yes, I, it landed at my feet. I kicked it and it kicked back. Took me out of the game. <laughs> how many days,
0: this was six or seven days into the battle that this happened?
1: The ninth night. Okay. It was the same night that my buddy Lee Darch was wounded and so forth.
0: And you were gonna tell that story about how he got wounded. Yeah, uh-huh. Which is, I mean it's in the book. It's it's crazy. Yeah. You want to tell us how he how he explained that situation to you?
1: Yeah, I'll will tell you. He he was a good Marine. I mean, when the chips were down, he played the game. He was put out front. Uh, uh, he was a scout sniper. That was his designation and he had in the hole with him uh, a young guy that had never been in action before, Danny Krull. And Danny was a uh, BAR man, B-R, that's a Browning Automatic Rifle. So there in the hole, Carver's in his poncho, getting arrest, rest, and Danny was supposed to be on watch. Well, uh, Cabra was sound asleep, and he was wakened by a, a, a kind of a gasp, cry out, you know. And he rose the poncho edge real slow, like look, and he saw that a jap had straddled uh, Danny Cruel and had cut his throat. Well, Cabra had his k bar knife right there beside him, stuck in the thing, so he took the knife and was able to get the Jap in the the back and took him out of the picture. But there were two other Japs in the hole and they didn't know that Carver was under that poncho and he didn't know that there was in the, so he got to his knees, turned and those uh, Japs began to bayonet him. So they got him in the chest, got one lung, they got him in the chest three times, and he had his arms up to protect himself, and one Jap stuck his, his uh, bayonet through his forearm here, came out here, went through the muscle here, out here. And the other Japs put the same hurt on this on his left side, so here he is, flexing his muscle. They can't drag the uh, their bandits out, because when he flexed the muscle, it tied them up. And so he's struggling there. Well, a guy back up on the side of the hill figured, he saw this action figure that Cobber and Danny Crowell had had it. So he throws a hand grenade down there. And it didn't go in the hole, but it must have done some damage to the uh, 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 guys at uh, uh, the bayonet, uh, Japanese, you know. Well, the Japanese were scared off, so they left, and scrambled out of the hole, and Cobra was able to get his arms divorced from the bayonets, and he was took Danny Cruel's. B.A.R. and shot those two Japs as he ran down the hill. And uh, he was awarded the Silver Star for that. He deserved it. Well, as I told you before, Carver loved his beer. and When he hit the island, he had 14 cans of beer. Well, on that ninth, ninth night left, on the ninth night, when both of us were hurt, he had only eight cans of beer left. Well, they finally get to cover and get him on a stretcher and they carrying him back. Now, this is in the dark of the night. And they get him on the stretcher and they take him to the rear for help and everything. And he's having trouble because blood is forming in his mouth, his nose, and so forth. But he's able to tell the guys, I tell you, uh, I forget the sergeant that was carrying him right there. But he said, When you guys get back, there's beer in my backpack. Plop, they drop him. (laughs) (laughs) They run back there, got the beer, and drank it while they're still in the hole. Come back, they can't find (laughs) Darch. It's dark and he's calling out to him, and he can't be heard because he had so much blood in his mouth and everything. Yeah, so he laid there until dawn until it uh, until it got light enough to find him. Uh, well, he loves to tell this story when he gets around a bunch of guys at the USO <laughs> and at the uh, American Legion and the Veterans of Foreign Wires. And I'll take him over those from the hospital, I'll take him over, and he tells that story. So this is my buddy. He nearly got me killed. <laughs> <laughs> then I tell the true story. You know, <laughs> he nearly got himself killed, uh, and <coughs> he, he was a character, and I loved that guy. He was really a guy.
0: Uh, and uh, I guess the lesson to be learned there is: Marines love their beer oh yeah (laughs) they love their beer Uh, now you get and you you already seen the flag be raised been raised
1: well uh, I think I was raised about the third day there I guess somewhere like that but I was on the far side of the island on the other beach I think I uh, alluded to that earlier tonight well anyway uh Let's see, that's how that was happening. Oh, I was working, there was a big cliff there, and uh, and there was a uh, pillbox on the side of that uh, other beach. You know, we ran to that other beach over there. Well, there's was a pillbox there, and it was, they had a uh, uh, Nambu, I guess, was firing at those ships that were sitting out there, those small boats and everything. Well, we're sitting up there, and uh, and this pillbox is on the side of this sloping hill, down to the down to the beach, you know. And uh, so they load me on a rope to put a uh, shape charge on the top of that uh, pillbox, you know, is concrete. So they lowered me down there, and I put a shape charge on that, and that didn't phase that the stuff. So they pulled pulled me back up, and then there, uh, a guy was with us. Radioed that all uh, uh, oh, that little ship out there. Let's see, is a, a landing craft, infantry, LCI, and they had a twin barrel uh, 40 millimeter mo- uh, deal up there, and they began to the firing them right there, and they just pumping things. They were bringing these uh, clips with four of those shells on it, putting them up there, and this guy would fire, and then another guy would pull him off there, and they'd get there, and they was laughing and whooping it up, and they finally just drilled a hole in that thing, that, that uh, pillbox just exploded. We was up there and every chair and all the things. Like. And later on that day, uh, we'd come up to a cliff, a uh, uh, hill thing, and there was a big door over a cave uh, on the side of that cliff. And it was heavy with wood and metal and so forth. So... I had to use, I was going to use uh, TNT to blast it in. So I put the TNT, uh, I put the uh, whole pack on the pole and I was carrying it and I was going to come up the side there and the guys were protecting me, you know, around any the, the Japs that came out to meet me or anything. So, I'm slipping up there, and I have my pistol that my mom had sent me. I had that in my right hand, and I had this uh, 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 charge of TNT on a on pole. And I was slipping up on that thing from that from the side, and I was gonna put that down there and put a sharp fuse on it and let it blow it out. Well, as I was walking up there, a Jap come running from around a rock right there and he had a band come charging at me. And I took a pistol and shot him about three times in the belly. And that's the only time I ever knew that I'd kill. That was my kill right there. Nobody fired. Because other times... When we'd see a job, there be four or five of us firing at the same time, you know, so you couldn't click. But that was my kill. <laughs> they all <laughs> cheered me back over here. And uh, so I set off that uh, TNT, and it didn't phase that uh, door at all. And so uh, as I was coming back, and we were looking at uh, that guy's rifle, and he was out of bullets. The one that I'd mm-hmm. shot, you know. <laughs> and so, about that time, I heard a cheer. Man, a cheer, just like somebody had made a touchdown, you know. And I, I stepped back, looked up there and there, that flag had just been raised. And I was about, all oh, about 50 yards, I guess, from the uh, base of that uh, volcanic, volcanic uh, that Sarabachi. Mm. And... Uh, and I thought, man, the war's over right there. We've won right there, but it went on for for another 30, 30 days, you know. But uh, Ira Hayes uh, was one of the guys that lifted that thing, and I knew him. And, uh, of course, at one time I thought I was the only guy on the island that didn't help raise that flag, cause <laughs> Everybody was saying, I was one of those guys that raised the flag. <laughs> uh,
0: and that was one of the last things you saw as you before you got evacuated out. I know you, you talk about in the book you had them turn your uh, stretcher so you could see the flag before you left. Yeah, uh-huh. Before yeah, you were medically evacuated. Yeah. It,
1: well, I was hurt. Uh, Lee Darch and I were both hurt the same night, uh, the night, the night there but there was some uh, uh discussion about that we were hurt the third night or something was it the third night
2: that's a, that's just poor
1: reporting yeah well anyway uh he was hurt the same night I was and and uh uh I was taken out to uh, put on well, I wound up in a uh, long ditch that they just used a bulldozer right there, uh, in the volcanic ash, just dug a, a hole there, and it was about 100 yards long, and it was just lined with guys on stretcher and the guys was working on them. And uh, I woke up, and... Uh, I'd been doped up, you know, and I woke up and I knew somebody was working over me. And uh, they got to my boots, and I wanted my boots. I was proud of those boots, my paratrooper boots, you know. And he said, Oh, one of them's no good. And I said, I want to make be fixed. And I was, I was nearly in tears, you know, because I was. I was hurt and I was under the influence of uh, morphine and stuff like that. So I said, I know, I want my boots, I want my boots. And so he took them off and I was laying on my stomach and I hugged those boots right here, pulled them up to me because I wasn't going to lose my boots. I was so proud of them. And then uh, I went out and the next thing I know I'm being put on a uh a board I was in a, a LST uh uh a uh, below an l s t and they were going to take me off that board with uh, four other guys with a platform on cables they were going pull they started pulling up and one of those uh stretchers fell off it was metal uh uh, farmed and uh, chicken wire on the bottom of it because it was a metal stretcher and that went to the thing. And there were about 12 sailors on the, on the Higgins boat and on the LST. Man, they dove in there trying to get to that guy but he just went down so fast and it he wasn't able to save him. And uh, so they pulled me around to the front or, or the rest of us. Around there was about four or five of us still on, on there. So they pulled us around, and they opened those doors on the LST and let the ramp down. And that boat just went up. Uh, the, uh, Higgins' boat just went up there, and they took us off, took us up on the top deck, pulled alongside the USS Ozark. Now... That's a mountain. So the uh, uh, supply ships uh, and troop trench uh, ports were named after mountains. So the L.S. Uh, the U.S.S. Uh, Ozark. That's where I was taken up there, and I was on the deck. It was raining, and uh, and a, a doctor was going through and picking them out. And he got to me and said, he said, take this guy in first. Take him right on in. And I said, I wanted to see the flag. And he said, well, he's up front right there. And just like a miracle, that ship slid around on anchor because the seas was really rough that day. And it was raining and everything. But all of a sudden, there was uh, shafts of light, and coming, uh, light coming through the uh, uh, clouds. And you could see that flag up there right there. And I cried. And then they took me down there, and I still had my boots. And the doctor, Dr. Anderson, uh, he uh, said, Take him on in there right quick right there. And so we went in there, and they put me up on a table. I still had my boots, and a corpsman tried to take my boots, and I wouldn't give him. No, you don't take my boots. You're not. Doing that. Don't take my boots. And Dr. Anderson said, let him keep his boots. Well, the next thing I know, I'm in a a room about this big, and it's in the room where the ship's crew lived. That's where they had their bunks in there. So I'm on a bunk that's about four or five feet high uh, here and then another bunk below but up there above, I could reach. There was pipes going through there, uh, through the book held up here. So I reach up there. Now, I'm under an influence of something that should never have been given to me. It wound up that it was, I was allergic to it. So I know what I'm doing, but I can't keep from doing it. So I grabbed that pipe and pulled myself off the bunk. I was going hand over hand to my boots. I was going for my boots, I was desperate, you know. I was crying out, I was calling for my boots and everything. I looked back on it, I thought I was crazy. Should have been crazy or something. Well anyway, I get to a a door and above that door, the pipes went through the, the bulkhead up there and so I reached up and then I was going to the other room and I lost it. I fell on the deck. And uh, and I don't know what happened but I was on the deck but I wound up in a big room. There was a big area on this ship. It was lit up and there was all kinds of cots all around here and the guys laying on it and everything. Well, I wake up and I'm thirsty, I've got to use, uh, I've got to uh, do a bowel movement, and I was real military. So I hollered real loud Corman! There was no Corman, and I didn't have any needles in me, you know, uh, feeding me, you know, uh, uh, and all that stuff. And so I hollered, and all these guys, were, they had head wounds and bandages on their head, you know, and they all hollered and everything, and I oh, God, what's going on? So I lay there and there's a guy next to me, and of course his head is here and my head is over here. And I could see he was looking up at the ceiling, and I said, hey mate, where are the Cormans here? And he didn't answer me. I, and I got real mad about him. I said, well, let me know what's going on here. So I hollered real loud again. And all these guys began to holler and scream and everything. And, and I was shaking my head, mad and everything, hungry, and, and just miserable. And so I gave up. And, uh, and I laid there for a while. Well, I heard a door open. And I looked up. And it over here is about 30 yards, I guess, from me, in this big room. Well, there was a truck or, or something over there parked, and they used those called tanks and trucks and things, those ships right there. But this room was well lit, and all these guys was just laying on uh, cots, you know. Well, I heard this door slam, and I look up, and it's Dr. Anderson, the guy that operated on me. So I holler real loud, Dr. Anderson! And all these guys began to holler and scream at me and everything, and he walked on down there and he just kinda of shook his head and kept walking, you know. And, uh, and then, man, I knew I was in trouble. I needed help, you know. I said, I'm gonna watch that door. If he comes through again, I'm gonna, he walked and went out of the door on the left side. So I uh, waited. And sure enough, about 30 minutes or something like that, I don't know, I heard this door open, and here Dr. Anderson comes in. So I'm smart, I'm not gonna holler and let these other guys fade me out. So I began waving, I began waving. He was walking, kept walking right there. Then I said, I had to holler, so I, ho- I hollered again, Dr. Anderson. And uh, all these guys began to holler. And then he stopped and kind of shook his head, and I was waving at this time, and so he comes over there. He said, well, Harvey, what are you doing down here? I said, I don't know. He said, I've been looking two days for you, and I just presumed you'd been buried at sea. And uh, he said, you don't know how you got down here? And I said, no, I don't know how I got down here. So he said, I'll go get help and I don't go anywhere. And I said, I'm not going, I am not to wait for you. While I was waiting for him, there was a group of about 12 guys came in. And I could tell they were doctors and corpsmen and everything, and they started over here and they'd come to a thing, there'd be two guys that'd put their, uh, they had stethoscopes on, they'd put on these guys that were laying there, and sometimes they'd just shake their head, and those Corman would take him off and put him on a a uh uh a, a stretcher and take him away and they was working along there, and guys was hoping that Doctor Anderson would get back, and these guys would come to one guy right there, and then they'd shake him off and leave him there and going around. So uh, Dr. Anderson came back down there while these guys were going. I said, Doctor, what are these guys doing? They're taking some of these guys out. He said, Harvey, these guys, we, there's nothing we can do to help them. They have head injuries, brain injuries, and they're brain dead right now. He said, there's no hope for them, we can't do anything for them. So we're burying most of them at sea. And I said, uh, I said, what was I doing down here? And he said, I don't know how in the world they got you down here. Then I told him that I'd what I'd done, you know. And they didn't know what to do with me, so they just put me down there with those guys. And so he said, "You wait here," and I said, "I'll wait here." <laughs> so he went up and came back with, with four corpsmen with him, and they put me on a, on a stretcher and took me over to the door. And uh, that doctor, uh, he got down on, uh, dropped down on one knee, and these guys were working. Together. I said, "Doctor." It, you can't help these guys in here? He said, no, we can't help them. There's nothing we can do. They're in God's hands. And I said, well, I guess I was in God's hand, too, for a while. He said, yeah, I guess so. So he said, we're going to pull into Guam, and we will be taking you off. You'll be taken back to Hawaii and so forth and so sure enough in about an hour they took me off the ship and dr Anderson came down and and i thanked him and i guess he saved my life mm-hmm. and then they took me to aida heights that pearl harbor and that's where i was i was in a full body cast up to here all the way down they had split uh, each leg had a cast over it too on one piece and uh, they put me in the room with this guy here now
0: when you before we talk about that I know you brought a, a, a photograph today a big photograph of um, uh, you know very kind of typical uh, picture yep. that you see of, uh, of a bunch of military guys and this is a picture of of marines clearly and this picture right here is a picture of
1: the first battalion c company 26 marines fifth division
0: and these are this is your in this photograph this is this is your company that you went into iwo jima how many people are in this picture
1: 243 two uh at the end of the battle after 36 days I think 14 of these guys walked off the island. The rest of them were wounded and carried off or died. A lot of them were buried at sea because they had six hospital ships and they filled up real fast and they had to go to Guam and Saipan to be taken off, flown back to Hawaii. 243 started and 14 walked off the island. Yeah, uh uh-huh. Unbelievable. And I've had this picture for years, and one of them hanging in, I used to hang over my bed, and every night I would look at these guys, you know. And then I moved in into my living room right there, and I could watch it. I looked at it every day, because I don't want to forget these guys. I don't want to forget them. And, and I can remember their faces, but it's hard for me to still put names to a lot of them. And I like darts, I remember him. Peter Adam, remember him. Uh, uh, officers, I remember him. And, uh, and just 14 guys walked off that island and uh, war is really costly in lives and everything and I'm not going to ever forget these guys
0: we won't either sir yeah when you're in Guam now you're you're basically in a medical ward right
1: yeah uh, uh, Aida Heist was the name of the hospital there it overlooks Pearl Harbor it was built there after the war started, you know. And so, I'm in this. Uh, and you get reunited with with, uh, Cobber at this point, right? Yeah.
0: <laughs> you guys well, couldn't well, get away from each other.
1: Let me digress here. I was put into a room in that hospital, at Aida Heights in Hawaii. I was put in this room with a, another bed and a guy in that bed. And he had a head bandage over him right there, and I was laying next to him, and and, uh, and I couldn't see him, and he he couldn't could, talk to me and everything, so I didn't say anything to him and everything. And uh, and the nurse would come in there, and they'd take him off and bring him back after a while, and. Uh, and he never talked, you know, never said anything. I gave up trying to talk to him and so forth. Well, I'm laying there feeling sorry for myself. And uh, I hear somebody, Fred Harvey, are you in this war? Just loud, you know. And I recognize Carver's voice. He has a voice that to carry you for a mile and everything. So I'm raised up. I'm in this room, it's about this big here, you know. I'm in the bed here and this other guy's in the bed over here. And I raised up enough and I could see Carver down there and he's hollering, kept hollering Fred hollering. This little nurse ran down there and got in his face and he said, you just keep your mouth shut I mean, she really read him (laughs) off, you know. Well, I'm looking for my buddy. He said, he He said, she said, he's in this ward, but he's in a room on the end down here. And so she pointed and laid him down there, and he came in there, and there was covered. man. I was glad. Now, he's in a, he's bandaged up like this, you know, his arms and everything, you know, taking those bayonets. And he was pushing Bill Cross, who's in a, Wheelchair with one of his legs missing, and Cobbler was pushing him like this, and, and uh, Bill was sitting there directing him and everything. So Carver uh, was stand, uh, standing there, standing in the door, and he he said, "What did he got? What Harvey and this guy standing here in this little room by themselves?" They said, well, because of their injuries, you know, and everything. Why aren't you out here with the other Marines? Well, she went over and closed the door, but she didn't close at all. I could hear them talk right there. She said, well, your buddy over here, we don't know what to do with him. He's got injuries and uh, his legs are blood clotted and so forth, so we don't know what to do for him. And uh, and this guy over here, he's he's lost his face. He can't communicate. And he wants to die. And so, God, I I kind of scared me, you know, and everything. So Carver said, "Put him out here with the other Marines right there." And uh, so we went up there, and the nurses' area right here is about halfway down the hall. That hall that ward must have been seventy yards long anyway, and beds are on each side and nurse's bed is right here in the middle. Well, they put me over here and put uh this guy over here on the right side, and uh Robert said, "Well, take those bandages off of his face and and the nurse said, well, he doesn't want them taken off. They said, take them off right there. People are going to have to see him. He's going to have to learn to live with it. And so well, I'd seen it when they uh, doctored him. And I looked over there, and they took a This was all gone. You could see the back of his neck back there, his backbone and everything. Mm-hmm. Only thing on his face was his eyes, and he had his ears. And uh, no way they could feed him, you know, there's no way they, he could eat anything. And they just fed him like they were feeding me too, you know, just intravenously right there. And they put him over there and that guy, uh, Carver, would talk to him, you know, and said, take your bandages off, you're gonna have to live with that right there. So, you're with Marines and we all understand and love you and everything. And so he took off the bandages and left them off and lay there and all these Marines come by and glance at him and then pat him, you know, and, and so forth. And he, he spirits rose, you know. And of course you couldn't tell us that, you know, but you could tell about his actions and everything. So Carver, uh, this is a a plastic surgery award that we're on, and the guy that headed up was named, well, I can't think of his name right now, but he was an All-American football player in Wisconsin. And he's a big, massive guy with big hands and broad shoulders. Here he was doing delicate operations on uh, on guys, you know, plastic surgery. And so uh, they they didn't know what they could do with me because of blood clots. They couldn't start operating on me because both my legs had blood clots all up into my stomach and so forth. But Calvert told me later that uh, that nurse had told him that there was no way that I'd live through it. And, uh, and I'd been in there about a week, and uh, and cobber talked to this doctor. What was his name? He was an all-American football player. Well, anyway, he said, Is, uh, how are you gonna fix it? He said, well, we're just gonna have to build him a new face, but we can't start on him until he gets strong enough to take it, you know, and so forth. And uh, and so Carver said, well, do you have something that... She said, yeah, we got a little booklet over here that has six facial features on it. Carver said, let me see it. So he looked at six pages with six facial features on it. So Carver gave it to... Harold here and he took him to each bed and had a note on there written, pick out the best looking face in this in this booklet. So they all voted on <laughs> which face he wanted, you know. And this guy, you know, he was of course he was happy to be out with the other guys and everything. And he would stay in a wheelchair a lot and go from place to place. Guys would come over and talk to him and if he had anything to say, you know, he'd ride it out and so forth. And uh, then they uh, uh, started operating on him and they didn't know what to do with me. I'm still laying there in my cast. And then one day the little nurse came up, she's from Austin, Texas, and I can't recall her name right now. But she was 65 years old at that time, and they were trying to discharge her, and she wouldn't let them discharge her. She said, I'm going to stay in here until this war is completely over, and she did. Well, she came out and told me, we think we might have found a way to help you. And she told me, she said, there's a guy, had a uh, item in the New England uh, Medical Journal or something like that. And he, he was in uh, New Orleans, and his name was Faust. And I remember the word Faust because there's an opera written about Dr. Faust, you know. So I've remembered that name all along. And so, uh, she told the uh, the commander of that hospital, you know, that she wanted that guy to come over and look at me. So they put him on, got a plane, flew him over there and they looked at me said, well, we can't do anything until we operate on him. And he said, I have a way. I think I might be able to help you. Well, they came in there and they took a machine uh, or vibrator or something, and cut the top of that cast off of, of me, and set it to the side. And then they put me on a table on my stomach, and and Doctor Faust put six needles along my spine, and uh, you know what a football or basketball needle looks like mm-hmm. needle about that long and little head on it, you know, to screw into a pump. Well, anyway, that's the way that, those things looked, you know. There's needles built like that. They weren't weren't the real thing, but that's what they look. Well, they stuck all those along my spine, and then they put some kind of fluid in there, and I thought they'd sit, put gasoline on me and set me afire fire. God, I... I it burned. I thought I was on fire. I said, hey, I'm, I, was, I thought they were trying to kill me, really. <laughs> and they said, no, that's just a symptom. They're not burning up and everything. And and so they gave me about six of those treatments, and my legs began to clear up, uh, dissolved in the... Uh, uh, Blood clots, and then the doctor started operating on on me, and plastic surgery, and uh, they uh, they took skin off my legs and put it on my on my butt and everything, and and then they took a t- picture of me, and it looked like my legs and my buttocks had been worked over by a guy that uh made tattoos on guys. Looked like a doctor had a tattoo artist had fouled up and this thing. My whole backside was just black. Hmm. And it was that volcanic ash and uh, and uh so uh they got me got me up, got me fixed, my legs began to thaw out, you know, the thing, and uh, it was gonna take me, they came in and asked me where I wanted to be taken to to hospital, and the closest one to my hometown was Corpus Christi, and that was nearly 900 miles, and so this doctor said, hey, uh, Harvey, how about coming to New Orleans? We have a hospital there, a naval hospital there, and I can look after you more. And I said, well, that's great. So I was in in the hospital, sent down there, and Carver had been sent before I they, He had left and gone to the East Coast. And so they uh, they put me on a plane and flew me to California. Well, that plane was a constellation and that's what it was used for, it was a hospital thing. And we got nearly halfway home and that plane developed problems. And so here I am with a bunch of other guys that were walk. Well, I was the only one that was on a stretcher. And so the nurse came in there and put things around me and gave instructions to all these other guys what to play. Because they was expecting that plane to go down. And so they decided it wasn't to the point of no return, so they turned around took us back to Honolulu. And the, all these hula girls met us, on I thought we been coming in for a vacation. And they put on a show for us. And, and then they fixed the plane and finally got me over to, uh, oh, what's that town across the bay? They have a football team there, uh, San Francisco. What is the name of that? Alameda? Alameda, yeah. And that's where they landed me, right there. And they put me out on the tarmac, and I had my hands over my eyes like that. The sun was shining in right there. And somebody kicked me. I said, you little bastard, where in the hell have you been? <laughs> I look up at his copper. <laughs> well, he had been taken to another hospital further down the coast, about 20, 30 miles from there. And he had been hitchhiking for the last three weeks, hitchhiking over every day to meet in these planes that were bringing guys in. He finally found me. And so they they took me over there and I, I, I can bring up the name of that hospital he was in. Well, I can't. So it's not that important. So they, uh, that doctor wanted me to brought, be brought back to uh, New Orleans. Well, cobber was still there at, in California when I left. Well, I was, and uh, I got in pretty good shape, you know. I could walk around with a cane and crutches at time, and and uh, I heard that they, there was a farm out outside, of, over across the river in uh, in Algiers, Louisiana, and the uh, Navy had an ammunition dump over there on the river across the river. And, uh, and they let Marines go over there and rehab, rehab- uh, you know, g- get better and they mm-hmm. take care of things on the farm, and so I heard about it and I begged them to let me go over there. So they let me go over there and, with a the stipulation that I would take care of chickens because I couldn't take care of anything else. And so here I went over and I was taking care of chickens and they had these white-legged chickens and great facilities for them to live on. They never got on the ground. They was on wire, uh, uh, chicken wire, you know, and uh, they had uh, uh, oats or something or planted, seeds thrown in there, and these chickens would walk around and eat that green as it come up high enough well, I would gather up the eggs and take them in and uh, doing that, you know. Well, the guy that was taking care of that got real mad because that was a cushy job, but it was the only job I could do, you know. And so I was taking care of the chickens, you know, and feeling sorry for myself and, and uh, everything. Well, I had a bucket full of eggs, and uh, I'd take them over there, and they'd, they'd take them up the naval base uh, 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 eating place, you know. And uh, they took care of it, all their eggs and so forth. Well anyway, I was out there and had a bunch of that and I had a walking on a, using a cane and, and I heard the horn sounding right there and the guy was screaming and I look up and, and it was Lee Darch. He's sitting up on the cab of the uh, truck, and they were hauling slop from the uh, uh, cafeteria, and it was cover, he had found me. Then he told this story. Well, he was shipped to an area up on uh, the East Coast. Do you remember what that place was? I don't. Well, anyway, he was taken up there, and he was discharged, so he tried to buy a motorcycle. And he called my mother, and found out where I was stationed. And he said, "Don't tell Car- uh, Harvey where I'm at and everything." And so, he couldn't buy a motorcycle. He didn't have enough money, so he hitchhiked down there. So he hitchhiked down there, and it took him three days to get down there. And he got his uniform was uh, soiled, you know, and he been in it for about six days and so and he's one of these guys that man had to be dressed completely well in that picture we tell, tell him that he was the only marine that ever invaded with uh, pressed dendro and all that.
0: Yeah, and, a picture in the book where it shows him. Yeah. From behind, you can see the beer in his gas mask thing, and you can also see that his, that his uh, uniform is pressed and starched. Oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> and they had his initials. Yeah. I mean, his name uh, stenciled on his, uh, his uh, spade, you know, yeah. and, and trenching too. Well, he hit... It took him six dry, uh, six days, to, uh, no six trips, a uh, uh, rides to get down there, and it was about three or four days it took him to get from the East Coast down to New Orleans. Well, he gets to New Orleans, and he don't know where where I'm at. He just knew I was on a naval base down there, so he has no idea what to do and everything. So he goes to a tailor shop cleaning place you know and that guy cleaned his uniform you know and and pressed it and everything for him, because he had he needed to look good all the time so he he uh, was walking around having no idea what to do so he saw a, a Red Cross car parked in front of a building right there and it was a Red Cross office right there so he walked over and looked, and there's, there's a lady, little lady sitting at the desk. So he has his discharge papers and everything in there, and he left his sea bag out outside. So he walked in there, and he looked around, you know, like he was being followed. Got up close this way and said, "I've got to find a man. Now. I'm on a special mission, and I've got to find him. You know, it's uh, it's a real critical thing." She said, I'll help you. She got fired up, (laughs) and she found out that uh, I was over there at Aida Heights at that uh, Naval Ammunition Base over there. And so she said, I'll take you over there. So she closed up his office, her office, and, and covers holding his discharge papers on there and looking around, you know. Gets a C-bike and put it on there. And she goes down through town, you know, and running stoplights because she was in that thing that had big red crosses on it, you know. And she gets him down there to the uh, uh, ferry boat. That's where they had a bridge built across there. So, um, and she had called over at the base and they had a... uh, A van over to meet him, you know, and everything, and uh, so he pulls the car up, and that uh, that uh, ferry boat was waiting on him, and so Comber got out, and he hugged that lady, and she had tears in her eyes. (laughs) She (laughs) did her
0: part for the country. Oh, yeah. Top secret mission. (laughs)
1: Yeah. (laughs) So he gets over there, and this guy, then this thing uh, deal. He looks around and he thought should be an admiral or something, you know, the PFC. <laughs> <laughs> and so this, uh, this car had a siren on it, so he turned on the siren to run him uh, down to uh, uh, the town, uh, 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 the little town across, there, uh, and got him to the base, and the he's gonna that guy was gonna take him to the to the headquarters office. He said, Oh no, I can't stop there. I've gotta go so and said, I'll get down there some way. So he's standing there and you see this truck coming around the corner and it it just coming out and it had two barrels of slop from the mess hall on it. And they they tell him said, "Hang on there," and he said, "I'm not getting up there thing million flies around and everything." <laughs> and so, he uh, there's two guys in the truck, so they put him, uh, they take the uh, a sea bag and put it up there between them, and then he gets up on the hood and sits on the cab right there. <laughs> and when they get close to that farm where I was. They began to honk their horn and hollered, cover stomping the uh, hood of that truck, hollering my name and everything. And I was so happy to see him, I cried. <laughs> he came, he came up early and uh, well, I was really glad to see him. You know, it's just like losing your best friend, you know, and finding him in the end. And so here I am, and. I'll take him over there to the sergeants who's in charge of us on that farm. That uh, that owner of that farm when the war started donated his farm lands to be used to build ammunition dumps, you know, that where they dump uh, or mounds where they dig in the side in the ground and and had that thing. There's about fifty of those mounds along there. And so this sergeant, God, I can't think of the name, is in charge of the farm, you know, because that guy wanted his farm farmed back just like it was after the war was over, and they had to take care of the, the horses on there and the pigs and well, the hogs, and uh, take care of the house and everything. Well, they had. He was in the house, and there were six other Marines in there beside this sergeant that was that was in charge of them. So uh, when Covey got I took him over there, to the sergeant the sergeant was working on a wheel on a uh, a tractor, and I said, "Hey, sergeant, this is Lee Darch. He's my buddy, uh, and he just got into town. Can he can he stay here?" And he said, "Yeah, he can stay here." So. Uh, he took us in to his desk right there, and he gives him a a, uh, a card, you know, to get him in and out of the guy that had already left. So here, covers uh, another name, and he's on base without not even in the Marine Corps anymore. And so uh, uh, we, he was going to help me with the chickens. And so uh, we t- take over the chickens, and this guy, big old red-headed guy, he was the guy that had the chicken job, which is the best job on the on the farm. He had to give it up. And he he was mad at me. He wouldn't even speak to me. So here Cobb was and on base with a with a card, you know, to let him get in and off on of the base and uh, he was just another Marine. He just didn't draw any pay, you know. (laughs) (laughs) And so uh, we stayed down there for quite a while, and uh, we decided that that the chickens, some of those chickens weren't doing their job, and Cobber said, we need to cull out the non-layers. So he called a... uh, a vet veterinarian uh, and ask him uh, how you decided which one was layered. He said, well, put two fingers at this point and everything. We got the wrong information. and We took it wrong. And we killed a bunch of those layers and they cut the production of eggs out. We got in trouble. They brought us. They brought me in because the couldn't go before the man, you know. And they were going to send me back to the hospital, and and really mad, and and this this sergeant was out there. He said, "Well, let them stay, and I'll put them on the hogs." <laughs> and so they put us on the hogs. That's the worst job on the on the deal. So and how long
0: were you down there at the hospital in total, or at the at the farm in total?
1: Oh, probably three months.
0: And then that was. That was the end of your career. You got discharged at the end of that.
1: Yeah, from the hospital. Yeah, I was discharged from the hospital, and so I was free to go. Why don't you read that oh, out sure. loud because that introduces Coburn and what they, we meant to each other.
0: Yeah, it's uh, a picture of you two, and I guess this is the the day you were discharged.
1: Yeah, we they took us out... Uh, this lieutenant and this sergeant drove us out to the edge of town, and uh, I drank a Coca-Cola, and Cabra had a beer, and the, the, both these guys saluted us, and, uh, and that sergeant had been in charge. Of, he was in there in tears. He had to see us go, <laughs> and so— uh,
0: It says, uh, our faces are bathed in sadness. We had just been medically discharged from the Marine Corps— the Corps, which had been our home, was now just a memory. We loved the Marines and thought we'd always serve the flag, but circumstances intervened and left us homeless. We now faced an uncertain future. However, it didn't mark the end of the friendship that had been forged and nurtured by war. Like brothers, we have remained close ever since. Well, see it. Yeah, there's, and there's great detail in, in the book um, That that you've got to tell even more stories and and it's it's great to hear those and I definitely anybody um, Should get this book and and it's available right now um, and uh, I got to say there's two versions of the book and The version that you want to order and we'll have it on our website so that people will get the right one It's called hell. Yes. I do it again by T. Fred Harvey, and it's got a blue cover. And the other version of it has a similar title, just get this one, Um, that's in blue. What made you decide to write the book?
1: Well, people wanted to hear the story right there, and I'd taken a lot of notes, and so I decided to write a book. But it's kind of hard for me because, I had I quit high school because I couldn't pass English. <laughs> well, you did
0: a great job because yeah. the book and uh, you know reading the book it's a it's a great read. And then you know you spent you spent once you retired you you said you coached football for forty five years and worked with kids and you still were telling me you still work out every day.
1: Yeah, uh, you still
0: get after it every day.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I have weights in my uh, apartment and. Uh, I work on the weights and I have one of those running machines where you pump and pedal and and I stay in shape and eat the right kind of food and and, uh, I want to die happy (laughs) so I'm staying in good health.
0: That's awesome you know I wanted to I want to close out um, by reading one one last uh, little piece of the book and um, Yeah, I'll just do it and and this is um, This is you You went to visit uh, Iwo Jima you went back to the island in the early 80s and this is something that you wrote as You were leaving the island after you went and visited the place where you had fought and where you lost so many friends and the book says, For each and every wave that has crashed upon these shores since those days so long ago, a mother has shed a tear for a son who fought and died here. Many of those mothers at this time have gone to be with their sons. Here, pride took over. You screamed loudly and ran straight ahead. Its notoriety was written in blood. And courage. Absent are the sounds of battle that emphasized the human voice in all its emotions against a backdrop of roaring cannons and small arms fire. The engines of war are silent now. Uojima today offers an innocuous view in stark contrast to what took place here in the winter of 1945. The hurtful and injurious qualities that it supported those days so long ago no longer are in evidence. Yes the engines of war are silent here but man has cranked them up many times since in other lands. Iwo today still offers a landscape that features a rugged coarseness everything that took place on this spot emphasized strength power and courage. Time and its helpmates, wind and rain, have erased the scars of war on the landscape, but still it presents a paradox with a rugged beauty about it. Time, on the contrary, has not healed the scars left on the hearts and bodies of those who fought here. There's nothing so brutal as when men point their brutality toward each other. My plane is rising to take me back to Japan I look down on Iwo as a new day is having its beginning Loneliness and sadness have crept aboard My heart holds many unsaid words As I can't put into words the fragments of my thoughts and feelings Thoughts and feelings that I can't ignore A pain of unreasoning desolation I'm engulfed by a gray veil of sadness. I leave with mixed emotions. I'm glad that I came while I regretting the return. Though great distances separate me from this island, the thought of it is always just a heartbeat away. I'm determined not to ever forget the men I marched among. All my tears will not ever wash away the memories. Now, in the twilight of my years, all I've got are my yesterdays and a whole arsenal of memories. And hell yes, I'd do it again. Once a Marine, always a Marine. And that wraps up the book, sir. I don't know if you have anything else you want to say before we wrap this up.
1: I think you've just said it for me. That's, I love the Marines, and uh, I know that at some time in, in the future I will join those Marines, and we will we'll march through eternity with each other. It'll be a homecoming. Thank you.
0: Thank you, sir. And um, obviously, thanks for coming on. More important, thanks for your service and your sacrifice for
1: our great nation. Well, it was an honor to serve you in this great country of ours. And God bless us all.
0: Thank you, sir. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. And Mr. T Fred Harvey has left the building and that was pretty pretty incredible and Thanks to everyone of You listeners for giving us the opportunity to speak to these incredible heroes and share their stories and None of this would be possible without your support so if you do want to support this podcast and Actually at the same time you can support yourself. Of course. That's kind of the way we've set things up That's how Echo perhaps you could show us the way to properly Support you. sure of course be happy
2: to all right first way is originmain.com Com okay, mm-hmm. so origin that's a company our company mm-hmm. Pete Roberts company in Maine so it's called originmain.com anyway this is where okay first first thing you want to do to support yourself very important by the way joint supplements krill oil that's to me an everyday supplement. actually both all of these are most
0: of these are everyday supplements i think yeah there's some that might not necessarily be classified as everyday supplements yeah
2: like the milk may not be everyday
0: supplements well, I, well I it could, beg
2: be. could be yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, that's like maybe could maybe couldn't
0: yeah yeah i guess it's not i would say the one that I would say discipline. You don't need that every day. Yeah. Straight up krill and joint. Yeah. Yeah. Joint warfare and krill oil. Yeah. Yeah. That's
2: daily. So krill, super krill oil to be not to split hairs, but yeah. Jocko super krill oil is a krill oil supplement. And when people ask me still now, hey, there's fish oil, there's krill oil. What's better? Krill oil is better. Not just because I like it better. It's factually better. This is why. Has more antioxidants boom. better absorption boom. better meaning like numbers wise Check. and I can go into why you want me to I will
0: I'm not really sure but so I. so the omega-3s threes, uh,
2: the, the omega-3s <laughs> get attached to your phospholipids as opposed to in, in fish oil the omega-3s get attached to the triglycerides so well, there yeah that, have it, that dude. method of delivery delivers a higher percentage of the omega-3s boom into your situation, <laughs> the science just stopped. with <laughs> right You had limited science, <laughs> no. but I still dig it. You know, yeah, but I you understand it. how it works yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, see, yeah, you, sure. if you know that as a sure. fact, unless I'm lying, which I'm not, <laughs> you know how it works as a fact. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. It, 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 there's a difference between me saying. Let me that. tell you what I
0: know. No, all right, you None take it, You feel yeah. better. That's what I know. All
2: right, see, that's that's <laughs> very unscientific.
0: You'd be like, okay, I feel better. But, but, but wait a second, honestly. If I came to you with a book and explained this to you technically, what would what would have more weight? Me being like, "Hey, here's how this works with the phosphogenic materials moving through your membranes," or if I was like, "Bro, you got to try this because it it works." Yeah, which one would carry more weight? With me,
2: you. Well, no, with me I think the book. Oh, only, the, the book, Trump's taco. Be, because the reason does. that you're making actually a really good point, in my opinion. That one, you know, the whole it's like uh, social proof, right? Social proof. That's oh. a, that's like a real thing.
0: But you started taking working krill oil because, because I told you because to. You, yeah. Despite everything that the book all you, so did, I think did, you just speaking uh, yeah. of not telling the truth, I think you <laughs> just lied. I'm saying, nah, well,
2: you, you know what? You're absolutely right. And actually, I'll do Thank you, you <laughs> one better. Actually, you'll do yourself one better. You told me to take krill oil. I took real oil. My father-in-law has been t- taking me, telling me to take krill oil for. A decade, Dang. literally one decade. No krill oil. I hope even one. He doesn't.
0: Does he listen to the podcast? I hope not. I hope not too, because otherwise too. you're in yeah. trouble.
2: Highly disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> Nonetheless, I'll tell you what it does. It keeps your joints healthy. Healthy joints are happy
0: joints. As
2: far as joints being happy goes,
0: listen to you with a little jingle. <laughs> I'm just
2: saying, it's true, bro. It's true. Anyway, uh, the, it's yeah. This is one of those things where it's like it's it's like a, it's a marked. When I say it's not the kind of like hey, I just feel better. It's. It's not that. That's real ambiguous, in my opinion. When you're like, "Hey, I just feel better," you know, I just feel better. You're like, "All right, bro," you know, like there's a lot of things that can make you feel better. Like you get a good TV show on, that'll make you feel better. Tech, technically, no. Technically, no. Technically, for most people, (laughs) (laughs) that are not
0: you, bro. No, bro. Nonetheless, you see, you see what I'm saying. When you watch a good, let's say a good TV show, Hawaii Five-O. Okay, you watch Hawaii Five-O. Yes. You're saying you, if I, I mean, I'm not going to speak for you. If I watch a TV program. The whole time I'm watching <laughs> a good TV program There's something nagging in the back of my mind that's saying like you could be doing something else yeah. You could be improving yourself. Yeah, you're right. You could be making progress somewhere. You could be Prepping for a pot, you'd be doing another workout. You'd be swinging a kettlebell. Yeah, I'm not sitting there going, "Oh, this show is so awesome. awesome. I feel so good about it." Am yeah. I right or wrong? You are right for okay. yourself. I can see how you could think that. So there's times you where you're would. watching a TV and you're pumped up, like saying yes. you're okay. Yeah, that's cool. Well, we're if was one, one of the things, compared.
2: well, here's the thing though. Do you still watch that TV program? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it wasn't on this week, this past week, because that's the season finale well. was last week. So you know, we're off for. A few I don't weeks. know if
0: you still watch it after the incident. Yeah, bro. <laughs> <laughs> the incident <laughs> anyway
2: you my point is if someone says it makes me feel better better in the way they say it is a real general way, it's less <laughs> compelling than them saying like me in my situation got it. I'm like, hey, when I woke up freaking I did like practice perfect form in getting up out of my bed for my back not to bother me super bad to the point of it I me actually admitting that it's painful sometimes. Actually, it's not painful. It's just like, you know, you just kind of can't do it. Yeah. And my daughter would jump on my back all the time. Sometimes stuff. your back
0: It makes you talk like this.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes, yeah. Anyway, I take krill oil, boom, six days, a week later, boom, my dog jumping on my back, no problem. I fly out of bed. Like I just warmed up. Now, what about joint like warfare? This. Same deal. See, and here's the thing I didn't look as much into the scientific part of joint okay, warfare. Well,
0: speaking of science, why don't you explain your arm injury before? yeah joint warfare current yeah so he, it, this is pretty compelling it's in, very, in my opinion argu-
2: very compelling in it's my opinion compelling. too so so same deal this is an anecdotal situation where okay all right some of us may know I tore my bicep tendon off the bone again again the other side now yeah hey man that's that bicep life you know <laughs> it happens anyway so yeah this was what a few weeks ago you're slightly whatever. proud no, the, the way you I explained made, I made to a joke me,
0: I thought I was proud of the joke but you the way you explained to me that because your biceps are so massive it puts extra tension on the tendons and that's why they got torn even though you're explaining it like it's your hard done by but <laughs> the reality is you kind of got a big smile on your face all proud of the guns no, anyway
2: Brad, no <laughs> I'm proud of the joke.
0: okay okay that's
2: anyway, cool. is that real though? Uh, I think here's a more accurate way of putting it. So yeah, so okay. When you train biceps, right? Typically, typically. And some people, the people train biceps. Are, but typically, you don't go all the way down to straight, like no elbow mobility, and okay. then all the way up with a super heavy weight. You just can't do that heavy weight unless you train that way mm-hmm. the whole time. So the
0: cutting corners in training.
1: In a way, okay. you know, you can you no, can call understood. it
2: that, and and I dig it. You know, Cheating. yeah. So. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: is there cheating? No, the big really? cheat sets with Arnold <laughs> back in the
0: day. <laughs> yes. That was total '90s bodybuilding. That was all. Yeah, that's real all though. That. Yeah.
2: So when you develop strength in your biceps with size and all that stuff, when you do develop the strength, the strength exists mainly on a certain part of the curve of the right, range right. of motion, right? Yeah. So, but that strength is still there, big time. Your biceps muscle Are s- super strong, but when you extend it. To this flat, you still kind of have that strength in the muscle, but down there, it's yeah. like I don't know. It's like the stability of the structure just yeah. isn't as much. I don't know. This is me. W- was
0: your arm fully extended both 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 times? times?
2: Both times fully mm. extended, and me just. Just a little flex, flex ho- flexing hard. Yeah, just going too hard. You know, at yeah. the time one was in a tournament, which obviously makes sense because you're, f- yeah, after it. And the other time I was just got too excited training with the training partner I haven't trained with for a long time. With keeping, and, you know, escalation. Yeah, the yeah, little, yeah. Little fired up. <laughs> we'll see. Escalation. Yeah, but anyway, nonetheless, tore off the bones. Bad deal. It's not one of those deals where it's like, oh, I pulled my muscle or whatever. This is so you got to go in. They cut it open. Whatever. They they stretch it back down they staple it or whatever back to the bone. Mm. <laughs> Actually they drill in your bone. He told me that this mm-hmm. one. they drill in your bone, make little holes and they staple it inside the hole. They then they staple it up. Stitch you up. So, I got that less than a week ago, by the way. Less than a week, literally. And so I'm like, all right, I got to, you know, I'm, I'm out of the game for a little bit. I got to get back in as quick as I can. I up my dosage of joint warfare. Krill oil stayed the same. Joint warfare uh doubled. Actually I didn't double, it. almost double.
0: Mhm.
2: I was taking two a day. Now I take three and in the morning and then two at night. Right, mm-hmm. It's almost double. So I do have a basic comparison because like you said, like we know, I had the exact same injury, exact same injury on the other side. Same surgery, same everything. Nine years ago, by the way. I wasn't, like I'm older now. So that's mm-hmm. something too. So. This recovery like given right now is like way quicker like this morning while I'm putting on I'm putting on pants origin pants By the way, <laughs> I literally forgot. I had the injury just for a second That's pretty You know impressive. you're just like
0: doing it or whatever and we're, well, and we're not even a week out We're we not week out? even a week. Yeah, because nope. you were laid up for a while for the other, other one. one. Yeah nine years ago when You were a young buck. Yep yeah. well, Same exact go. injury on warfare
2: boom. Yeah, and nothing that nothing nothing <laughs> to is me different. that is
0: more compelling than <laughs> you explaining the Science behind it. I, and I'm not saying yeah. I don't believe the science. I'm saying I'm talking to you right now and I've seen this with my own eyes. So that's yeah. like, to me, makes more sense. Yeah, uh, it doesn't make exactly. more sense. I, yeah.
2: Yeah. This is, yeah, it's, it's, to me, I'm more surprised. Like, my wife gets mad at me. It's like, you're injured. You're injured. You're going to this and that because I'm just like cruising, took off mm-hmm. the sling or whatever, mm-hmm. cruising around, lifting weights, not with this arm. Mm-hmm. I'm yeah. not getting nuts. Actually, I'm kind of doing push ups, like, oh. like push ups on it. Um, but yeah, it's like, like, there's no pain, nothing, no inflammation. Well, very little inflammation. Nonetheless, um, you, I think the, like, what do you call it? Uh, the scientific kind of information versus the peer, um, the approval, mm-hmm. you know, what do you call it? It's called something. I said it earlier. Nonetheless, like, if I tell you, uh, right. like, oh, this works for me and, like, mm-hmm. legitimately, um, if you're a skeptic of the whole deal, like if you're yeah, like, it, like, like, I don't know sure, if this works, sure. then the scientific like well, stuff if will Well, for some will reason, be,
0: yeah. if there's some reason for me to be telling you like to do something. Yeah, like go to a psychic Yeah, or yeah. then it's, tarot then, card yeah.
2: Mean. Yeah, and then I'll be like, no, bro, you're dumb for
0: doing yeah. that. And then you see some scientific literature, then you're more compelled mm. if it's solid. No, I, I read the scientific literature and, and obviously as we were putting it all together, it was like, all right, let's get the right stuff in there, which is stuff that I had yeah. used from other supplements in the past, but. And combine it all into one there you go boom. boom all
2: right Jocko supplements also speaking of which Discipline this is the the one you mentioned that you don't take every day see you know I, who does
0: take it every day Dave Burke. Deal, Dave hell yeah, so, so which is kind of
2: something it. which is kind of something because Dave is one of those smart guys yeah, like yeah, yeah, Dave yeah. is kind of one of these guys who's like He's an achiever that guy. Yeah, he met an his brother by the way. Yeah, so if he's doing it every day, there could be something. To do that. That's what I think. Another one of those. He he. Approvals. The way he
0: talked to me about it, he like got all crazy, like big smile, and was like, "I got it on it." Right. <laughs> he's yeah. like, "I take it at this time at night, that way I can yeah. wind down. And it gets me all blah blah blah."
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I was like, "Dang, Dave!" Dang, even the microdose of caffeine. Yeah, a little <laughs> microdose before you go to bed.
2: Well, he's probably used to the caffeine. That's why. I saw, yeah. Well, like, no, he, he does. He
0: takes it far enough of, ahead of when his family goes to bed. Ooh. He's like taking it, and then he gets a couple hours worth of good, solid output.
2: Yeah, yeah. And then
0: bring output. Yeah.
2: Here's a weird thing about caffeine. Just as a side note. Bro, I've drank a coffee before and went to sleep. It's almost like the coffee put me to sleep. I'm
0: not like that. No, cuz you don't drink caffeine. I don't drink a lot of caffeine.
2: Yeah. Bro, if you drink a like a big coffee, oh, like the blue one me, I drink, bro, you be me.
0: like during the muster because yeah. we're getting limited sleep during the muster, <laughs> even yeah. limited for my standards. Yeah. yeah, I take caffeine. I mean, I take I take um this right here, I take this right here. I the take cheap. Jocko White Tea, and I take the discipline. But you just keep drinking yeah, it. Yeah, I drink a lot of
2: it. Yeah, yeah,
0: because you know I'm
2: busy. What a coffee! You figure what? Fifteen per serving milligrams, and then so like one of those things I was drinking. I don't know, not today, but the other day, is three hundred milligrams that's, of caffeine. That's that's just dumb. So that if you sipped on that, like over you know a two three hour period. And Just drink the You're whole thing ultimately fired up. You will be oh, man, fired man. up. No, Me there's times
0: where I've drank like tons of Red Bull and just been like Which is why I try to taper off the heavy caffeine. Yeah, you, don't, <laughs> you know yeah. Taper off the heavy caffeine like that's why I don't make beverages that have 900 milligrams of caffeine because yeah. it does it doesn't And you don't need that you don't want that you well, start getting it starts it starts having other effects you start getting get, like You talk too much, right? Yeah. You talk too much. Actually, speaking of talking too much. <laughs> I just met someone that came to roll, uh-huh. and they were like, "Oh yeah, you know, it's really good to meet you cuz I listen to the podcast." You know, he's like, "Cool." And then we rolled and we talked a little bit, and he's like, "You're just like on the podcast." And I said, "Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's like just we're hitting record as we discuss things." And then I said, "Probably the biggest difference between me on the podcast and me in real life <laughs> mm. is that in real life, I don't in the podcast. I talk the whole time and in yeah. real life. I actually don't talk. Yeah uh, Very much. I talk a lot less. Yeah, I should yeah, say. A lot less. Yeah Yeah, especially with people. I don't know with people. I don't know. I'm not very conversational when yeah. I know someone I'm cool to talk But so if you put 200 milligrams of caffeine rather than 15 mm. You'd be talking a lot. It's yeah. against yeah. your your whole thing. Yeah Well, it'd be making me act out of character. Out of character it'd yeah, be, that's it'd, it'd be. be it'd be influencing me in a negative way in a negative way I believe yeah, diff- but if yeah. you can just get in the zone. Yeah, it sharpens zone. the mind. I mean caffeine's proven yeah proven To sharpen you up. Yeah, so yeah, anyways good.
2: yeah to each his own You know, I think most people who like caffeine they're like coffee and stuff like they yeah. like that
0: And that's what that's one thing if you if you know you might need more discipline You might need more caffeine to get feel it if you're yeah. not if you're used to it, if you have a what's that tolerance?
2: Yeah, low tolerance or something, yeah. like th- or if high tolerance. But yeah, and d- let's face it, discipline. Jocko White Tea. That's not why you drink it. You don't mm, drink it because no, of no, the no. caffeine. No. That's not why. That's you know, you'll include
0: the caffeine. Yeah, the caffeine definitely. It's a will. little microdose. Get something. you, get you rocking and rolling.
2: But yeah, that's good. Discipline, cognitive enhancement. That's what you drink it for. Mm-hmm. Before you do some stuff, stuff that needs brain output. That's that's when you take it. That's when I take it. That's what good. That's when good deal Dave takes it. That's when Jocko takes it also milk this is protein powder, but to call it protein powder is kind of a disservice
0: for sure because it's, it's just it, it we just, just
2: go with milk milk here's the thing though i don't we don't want someone I personally I know I'm gonna speak for myself I don't want someone to hear hey milk hey what is that okay tastes good all this stuff but we'll, like you know there's a lot of stuff that tastes good you will get good protein from milk mm
0: mm-hmm. Yes, you will. Very important to know, know that. Then there's probiotics. <laughs> oh no, kidding. See, I didn't uh, know that. Yeah, and see, what's good? What doesn't probiotics? Okay, maybe for you, it's not like this. When I hear probiotics, I always think like, oh, that's something that, um, you know, someone's like, oh, you got to take your probiotics, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, it's it's not something. You know, for me, it's like, oh, I'm gonna take protein. Good. Yeah. Probiotics, I'm not worried about that. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. But so I never, I've taken them like a couple times before, but there's probiotics in it, and so now I realize like. I feel good, like my gut feels good. So maybe yeah. there's something to that probiotic activity. Uh,
2: okay, bro, Okay. There. so when you say maybe I'm not like that, you're correct, I'm not like that. Probiotics are good, yeah, just yeah. like antibiotics. Well, antibiotics are good, but for what they're for. You see what I'm saying? So probiotics are like, they're probiotic. <laughs> well said well said nicely yeah, done no, basically like your gut biome right yes. it, it promotes healthy healthy yeah. bacteria all this stuff and you're thinking probably it's,
0: it's a huge deal yeah, I actually know, I know I know now now, I'm starting to realize that I started yeah. to realize I've been wrong for 46 years yeah
2: it's kind of like it's kind of like if I have like the metaphor right now if I have the your, the key to life right the whole the answer to life Right? Mm. What is the meaning of life? I have it. I have it in my. I'm about to tell you, right? But you have earplugs in, so you can't hear me. I mm. still told you. Yeah. But you can't get it in your brain because you have earplugs. Well, you put that probiotics. Boom, takes earplugs out. Boom, you got it in
0: your brain. Same thing. That's Same great. exact thing, except it's you, you, should, you should turn got that whole thing own. into an advertisement. I think that's just incredible. <laughs> 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 Maybe I will. Anyway, <laughs> it's
2: called Milk, and it is mint chocolate flavor. Peanut
0: butter's coming. Peanut butter. Peanut butter, chocolate, chocolates good. coming, See, that's the and one. then it's just going to be. Yeah. And I, I think we're good on chocolate, just straight chocolate. You're good, like yeah, yeah, that's I think, a go. We, I've got this sample, and I had it good. this weekend, and, and yes, it is g o double
2: good. Well, I think the chocolate is kind of the staple, right? It is, it is, and that's why it took us a little while
0: because it's hard to nail it. No one to nail it,
2: right? To make it taste like chocolate and not diet chocolate or something like this.
0: The only thing that tastes diet anything. <laughs> you
2: see what I'm saying? Cool. Well, nonetheless, be on the lookout for that. And that is, if you're taking protein powder and are like, "Hey, I want some good quality protein powder." Forget about the term protein powder. Yeah, because Go that
0: that gives you the idea that this is going to taste like crap. And this is oh, this is the miracle. It tastes delicious. Straight up. And miracle. it tastes delicious, and it's got no sugar in it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. miracle. Also. Oh, whatever. Wait. Does it have a gram? It's got. Might have like a gram.
2: We'll put it this way: it's not full with no, sugar like no. <laughs> the old school Mega Mass five million. Oh, yeah, 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 in the yeah, big yeah, dog yeah, yeah. Not, not, not food got bag. Remember
0: that shit. Not that. Good. Remember that. Oh yeah, yeah,
2: that was good. That tasted kind of good. It's still sweetened has the,
0: with monk fruit. Yeah, that's what that. So if you're wondering, like, well, how does it taste? Not like the artificial sweeteners that people serve up, which taste nasty. Like yeah. no matter what, it tastes like crap.
2: Is monk fruit creamy? Nah, I mean, that's a weird question, but like monk fruit. Because it doesn't taste like, you know how you use like a, um, I guess, you know, like a sweetener. It has a fruity sweetened thing. Like the chocolate mint doesn't have I don't know what it, it looks like in its
0: raw form, yeah. but I know that it tastes freaking delicious. Well, I'm
2: going to look into that one, and I will report back. Speaking of reporting back, if in fact you want to look at it this way, I am reporting back to the three people this week that asked me what ghee should I get when I start jujitsu. So. I know to most of us, this is obvious right now, but I will answer this question anyway. It is an origin gi. And Rashgard, if you're doing no gi, by the way. But you get an origin gi. You get the origin gi for many reasons. Not only because it's the best gi, but because it's made in America as well. And there's plenty of options on there. So me saying get an origin gi, it's not just one origin gi. I guess technically, in a way, you just get if it's an origin gi, it's good. And, but you have many different options within the brand of origin ghee. So go there. Like I said, originmain.com. That's where you get everything. Made in America. Made in America. From the dirt to the shirt. Mm-hmm. Meaning, because if you don't really know what that means, it might not make as much sense. But when you do know what it means, it will make sense. This is what it means. The cotton is grown from America or in America from the dirt. Get it now. Yeah. And then the shirt at the end, or yeah. technically it's a gi or whatever. Whatever you get. Boom. Anyway, made in America, everything. originmain.com also. There's an immersion camp, jiu-jitsu immersion camp, filling up.
0: By the way, yeah, filling up quick.
2: So get on that. Well, the space is big, so which is good.
0: The, yeah, uh, yeah.
2: The jiu-jitsu at the at the muster was good. How yeah, was big awesome. that was? Yeah, yeah, That was good, man. And it, it was still not big enough, I yeah. think. Well, I think we'll double we could up if it if we, we have
0: to. Yeah. We're ready to order more mats, but yeah, yeah we, it's gonna be awesome. Yes. Yeah. I I sort of have an announcement to make on that too. All right. You know, he's coming up me. to to that camp. Lay it on me. Uh, a guy by the name of Dean Lister. Okay. <laughs> yeah, Dean's coming the up. Knowledge. So okay, okay. the knowledge, exactly. Yeah. Just uh, just straight knowledge. And if you come up, you get a chance to uh, learn from Dean Lister. And yeah, that's as good as going to get. Yeah. Learning yeah, Dean the is the one sh- of those
2: guys, like kind of those w- wizard types.
0: Yeah. With, you know, he's a. I remember.
2: And granted, I was and a white It's not
0: even a kind of like thing. Yeah, he's, like, straight he's, up. He's, he's got. He's got a. He's got a. Um, a, a Gift yeah, like a legit gift that people do not have
2: yeah You ever And uh, I'm not even asking do you have you ever because I know you have probably many mm-hmm. times But you you're asking a question about like this problem that you're mm-hmm. having oh, yeah. And you're having it because the guy who's doing it to you this For move sure. to you is just super good But yeah. you're having this problem, and you're kind of halfway thinking Actually, more than halfway thinking this is not really an answerable question. But whatever, the more yeah. info I have, and you ask him, and then he solves your problem, mm-hmm. and you're like, wow have you been thinking about this the whole time? You know, all <laughs> this jujitsu stuff or whatever, while all of us have been living
0: life, kind of thing." That's what it seems like. He taught something the other day, and it's from oh, you know, I'm, I use the crucifix a lot. Sure. So he taught something from the crucifix mm. that I never saw before, never thought of. And he did it like it was just like, you know, like taking a breath. He's like, oh, yeah, when you get this, you do this. Yeah. And I'm like, are you serious? I've yeah. been training with you for 20, um, 23 years and you never maybe gave me a heads up on that. Yeah. Bruh. <laughs> and the reason is, the reason is there's so much in his brain. There's so much jujitsu in his brain. He can't even like figure out what to tell you unless you come to him with a problem. Right. That's why it's great yeah. we if you're coming to the immersion camp, come with problems for Dean. Yeah. With, come with questions for Dean, because that's what you want. And then you can draw the answers out that you need from him, because there's too much. You can't download everything from his brain. You can't. Yeah, yeah. It's not like, hey, he's going to teach you. Like You learn this one thing. No, you, you're you going to have to bring questions to him that then he'll solve problems for you. Yeah. That's what I recommend. Jiu-Jitsu camp, immersion um, camp. Yes. 26th September through May 2nd. Did you say that already? August, oh, 26th. Oh, sorry. I guess yeah. I said it wrong. End
2: of August. Oh, good. You know? I remember that because that is my son's birthday. August, twi- uh, August 26th through September 2nd, two sessions. <laughs>
0: oh, or you can say for the whole, se- the whole or time. Or the
2: whole deal. Yeah, man. Good deal.
0: Good register fun. At, uh Register at OriginMain.com.
2: Yep. Leif is going. Leif Bavin. Dave Burke. Good deal, Dave. Yep. I'm going. JP's, JP's going.
0: I think it's going. Yep. How's
2: this Dean when I got my surgery last week? I'm going in for my surgery
0: Dean is there just coming out of his surgery So how is he gonna be as far as rolling? He won't be able to go roll hard, but yesterday I trained yesterday just a little in-house little core group of guys. We came and trained and Dean came and coached and he was showing moves. Yeah, yeah. so Yeah, yeah, he was putting pressure.
2: Yeah, yeah, I'll I'll be there kind of on the on the you'll be on the Yeah on the fence there like I rolled with Pete um, like you know, or didn't wear before I got my surgery. But my bicep was detached, yeah, yeah, yeah. and I just put my hand like this. Mm-hmm. I couldn't. You can. You just basically can't pull. Yeah, yeah I can't. Anyway, this is my injury. Bicep. I can't
0: pull. You just have to be careful.
2: Yeah. So I could do a lot of that kind of rolling, yeah. but I got it's. It's hard. I can't roll probably with like you know like um level twelve less, head hunters. Yeah, less experience or something like that. Yeah, I'll just yeah. roll with you. No, you can't roll with me. I'll roll with Pete. That's all. But I basically, just trust Pete. That's it. Pretty much. <laughs> But yeah, go to that. That'll be fun. Uh, don't worry what level of Jiu-Jitsu you're at, even if you're at literally level zero. We had level, if,
0: level zero people came last year. Yeah. Like First a b- jiu-jitsu big group class. of them, yeah, too. For sure. Yeah,
2: it's good. Come and get it. So yeah, come and get it. Also, for fitness gear, the best fitness gear. Some of the best fitness gear. All the fitness gear I have pretty much on it.com slash Jocko. That's where you get it. Also, I got on it socks, by the way. Freaking awesome. Got one right now. Um, yeah, get, the, get the, the primal bells, the kettlebells. See what I'm saying? And when you're looking for the information before you start the kettlebells, this is, it can be dangerous, bro. Swinging around big cannonballs. Yeah,
0: sure. yeah. Get L- a mishap.
2: Yeah, look at that. <laughs> <laughs> big time. <laughs> um, they got some good information on technique and all that stuff. It's good. A lot of cool stuff on there. Right, on Com slash Jocko. <clears throat> also when you get the books that Jocko reviews on this podcast I got them organized on the website jockopodcast.com books from the episode this little tab on the top click on there boom I got them all organized by episode Uh, click through there take it to Amazon and you know do your shopping get the book get whatever else keep shopping whatever or not whatever you like nonetheless it's a good way to support if you do also subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already on Stitcher and iTunes and Google Play and wherever you, or wherever you listen to the, uh, to the podcast because there's a lot of podcast apps out there and I get it. It's good. It's a good thing. Vast marketplace of podcast apps. Get in there. Nonetheless, subscribe when you do and that's a good way to support. Also on YouTube, video version of this podcast if you're interested in that video version. Uh, also, we got as excerpts on there. It's a good reason to subscribe in my opinion So when I put out an excerpt, maybe mm-hmm. that's the one that really you're waiting for mm-hmm. Rather than sifting through all the episodes and then sifting through the episode which is three four hours long sometimes mm-hmm. And then oh there it is and then listening to it kind of thing, And uh, you know I don't know how practical that is sometimes so boom I try to put all the excerpts all the points all the significant points And there's a lot by the way that Jocko makes try to put them in excerpts on the YouTube channel Maybe that's the one you were looking for. That's it's a good reason to subscribe, in my opinion. So yeah, do that. Good way to support as well. Also, Jocko has a store. It's called Jocko Store. So let me ask you this. Not you, Jocko. That's the people. <laughs> have you ever looked at Jocko's shirt and been like, you know what? I wish I had that shirt. Or have you ever looked at a shirt that I wear that says discipline equals freedom? Have you ever looked at that and said, dang, I want that shirt? Guess what? There's a place you can get them. It's called mm. jacostore.com. That's where you can get it. Discipline equals freedom. Get after it shirt. The actual shirt that Jocko's wearing right now, <laughs> literally, the one that Jocko's wearing right now, you can get that shirt. Represent, big time. Good way to support and support yourself. There's also rash guards and stuff on there. Patches, hoodies,
0: hats. New hats, by the way. Mm-hmm. Trucker hats. Trucker hats. Well, I and like the, the trucker hats. F-
2: yeah, the flex fit. I thought you'd like the flex fit.
0: Yeah, I don't like flex fit, actually. <laughs> But I know that's that's probably the preferred hat in the population of the of the world is the flex fit. Yeah, I and think just still so. Like trucker hats, old school Burke.
2: <laughs> have you ever worn a flex fit hat?
0: Yes. Yes. Oh you
2: yeah. have. Oh, straight up All right. yeah. And You don't like that one. You don't like the convenience of this the flex fit. I guess uh, if you have the snapback, you just put it on one size, now yeah. like your head gets bigger.
0: My head does not get bigger. Your or, head gets or, bigger or smaller on a daily basis. Really?
2: Cuz <laughs> after we roll sometimes I feel like your head's kind of bigger.
0: No, I think that just may might be the way you feel.
2: <laughs> Mine's just smaller. <laughs> I get it. Nonetheless, both types of hats on there. Women's stuff on there as well. I'm putting tank tops on there. So look be on the lookout for that. Like for, for dudes? Tank tops? There's yeah, there's already women's tank tops on there.
0: Yeah, So we're gonna get dudes going going on school. Yeah, dude.
2: Yeah, exactly right. Boom, summer. Summertime. Yeah. Right? Boom, show off the guns. Beanies. Sun's out, guns out, beans out. Beanies are in for just in time for summer. All good. Um, But, you know, some places like Alaska, summertime's cold too. So, boom, get the beanie. Also, psychological warfare. If you do not know what that is, it's an album. Jocko's album on iTunes with tracks. Jocko tracks. And here's what It's not Jocko singing. It's Jocko talking to you. Every track is Jocko talking to you. And what he's telling you is reasons why you shouldn't give in to the weakness that you will be given into sometimes. If you don't have this, you will be given into this weakness on your path, on your campaign against weakness, on the path, on the war path. We're all on the path, by the way. Are we not? I hope so. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. I think you're kind of a leader on this path. I kind of evaluated I'm just this over here. Doing what, what I'm doing. Okay. No. And and I'm, I was into working out before I get it. You know. But it's the kind where, like, if I didn't feel like working out, it's like I just kind of won't work out. I'll do it tomorrow because I will, and I would usually, you know, kind of thing, <laughs> but when you kind of quantify it as this path and when 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 the the term campaign against weakness weakness" kind of got introduced, that's a really good thing too, because generally speaking, that's really what jams you up in in my opinion in my experience, where yeah, if I don't feel like doing it, right. I don't feel like doing it. That's weakness, right? If I say, oh, I'm not going to do it because I don't feel like it, then you go through life not feeling like doing stuff and not doing it. And most of the time, we don't feel like it, especially as you get older, especially as you take on other responsibilities. But if you make it a point to understand that I'm going to consciously not feel like doing something, understand that it needs to be done, then kind of fight that kind of weakness there. That's the path I'm talking about.
0: And this will help you with that path. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. But yeah. Back to the no, psychological no, warfare. Cool. I think no. you wrapped it up nicely. No, no, no. <laughs> I think no. you need I think to
2: go no. into more detail. <laughs> to me, it's important to understand that because the more that, in my opinion, or in my experience, the more I understood that, the more like kind of effective you know you are in staying on this path. So anyway, when you reach like a little small point of weakness, you listen to this album specific track that is designated for that weakness. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. You will not give in to that weakness.
0: That's good psychological warfare. We need to make a second album. Yeah. People need to ask what they want to hear uh, Yeah, what moments of weakness need to be overcome. Yeah, I know I had some for like smoking. Yeah, yeah. some for uh, drinking Drinking would be a so good one. Check, yeah, yeah
2: it, it in my the way it was born was because of a weakness that I specifically specifically had like something that it kind of like got to me Late, you know, like later on. Yeah. Like during at the time, I'm like, eh, hey, whatever. Why should I put this much pressure on my shell? Self, is that you know, is that healthy? you ever do that no, no yeah, I, I know don't you don't do that. Do that. <laughs> come on let's face it it's kind of like one of those things where it's like a, it's a justification but it's like uh like hey you shouldn't put so much pressure on yourself you know don't add this stress hey life is stressful don't add more stress you like this you know more when, stress. when it's like it's <laughs> <unnecessary. laughs> <Add more stress. laughs> <But, laughs> just an excuse man. Cool. Add more stress cool
0: it's true all right quiet I'm, on the set. Jones. I'm gonna Ooh. do a sound effect thing are you ready so jocko right. white tea obviously for a, a, a long time we've had bags that you can get. Yeah. Uh what's that called? Dry tea is what it's called. Yeah. And jocko white tea available on Amazon. Real tasty and good for you. And we just got it made and put into cans. So, here we go. Sound effects. Are you ready? Here we go. This is a Jocko White Tea opening. <laughs> oh. <laughs> there you go. So, now you can get Jocko White Tea in a can. It is delicious and It's good for you, and you know even if even if you don't like the taste even if you don't uh, like that It's good for you. You will like the fact that after you drink one can yep. You'll be able to deadlift 8,000 pounds minimum minimum. That's the minimum Yeah, and it's pr- been proven scientifically backwards and <laughs> forwards double-blind placebo placebo sure whatever you want to call it Yeah, jock tea. It's, it's available on Amazon Eventually we'll get it everywhere. That's the goal. But right now it's available on Amazon because so, that's the quickest way to get it out to everyone. So there you go, get it. Victory in a can, organic. Did I tell you that? No, Certified but I, organic. I saw it on the on yeah. the deal. Certified Actually, I just saw the organic. deal on, on the in the beginning. And just because. I'm impressed,
2: man. Yeah. No GMOs. Here. No.
0: No reason Cause. to go and drink uh, a drink that's going to have bit filled with a bunch of stuff that you don't want in your body. Agree. Just drink Jocka white tea alright books We've got the way of the warrior kid series and I Got um, here's just a little note a Kid uh, a guy wrote my eight-year-old who read your book, way of the warrior kid in January 2018 since then he's gone beast mode Runs 1.3 kilometers most mornings before school and 2.6 kilometers on the weekends He trains plays and enjoys life since reading your book his room is immaculately tidy your book switched something in him. He is self-motivated and strives to achieve We talk about 1% in life and doing the small things well in school and sports Thanks for your service and the book so there you go No big deal right can you imagine that that's freaking awesome I love his room that. is immaculate. immaculate He's on the path, you know yeah. the path Big time. so pick up way of the warrior kid and marks mission get your kid on the path If you want to support a warrior kid named Aiden that's making things happen go to irishoaksranch.com And get some of the soap that he makes on his farm from goat milk He makes jocko soap so you can stay clean Don't forget about the discipline equals freedom field manual of course Um, This was awesome. I was at the muster And We're doing PT. It's four, whatever 435 in the morning or something Mm. and this woman comes up to me and she's a little older and She just looks at me and she's like can I tell you something though that look was on her face? And so I gave her the nod of like go ahead and tell me and she's like it was November 7th 2017 and I was at Sam's Club and I saw this book this black book And I never saw a book like that And I picked it up and Looked at it and said this. I've never seen anything like this. She bought it and Since that time she's lost 23 pounds, and she said she's got her life back boom. That's awesome So you know who you are out there? So thank you for letting me know that that was a very cool story to hear and I appreciate that feedback That's the discipline equals freedom field manual thoughts and actions both inside. If you want the audio version of that, which people still ask me every single day, you can't get it on Audible, it's not on Audible, it's on Amazon Music, iTunes, Google Play, and other MP3 platforms as an album with tracks. Also for leadership, of course, there's the first book, Extreme Ownership, the leadership book for the battlefield business and life and actually somebody else at the muster said hey You never talk about the audible version of extreme ownership because that is available on audible and guess who reads it? Leif Babin and me mm-hmm. and the, and this guy was saying you you should everyone should be listening to that It's 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 better to listen to it than to read it which de- that depends on who you are But for mm-hmm. this individual yeah. he was like you need to tell people about that. That's awesome that you guys and anyone else is on that Audiobook, sound effects. We <laughs> yeah, put sound effects in there, machine yeah. gun fire, explosions, yeah. things like that. You know yeah. why? Because. Immersion. <laughs> Immersion. Cause, so, yeah. So, you awesome. can get that. Also, coming out September 25th, we have the follow on book to Extreme Ownership. It's called The Dichotomy of Leadership. It's available for pre order wherever you want to pre order Amazon, Barnes Noble, local bookstore. It's going to be out September 25th. If you want one of the first edition copies Which you do if you want to be a book book person like me you want to get that first edition Because that's cool And if you don't order it then you won't get it in time because the publisher won't make enough because they have no idea They don't understand how many people are out there waiting for this book So if you want it order it that'd be cool if you want to work with us in person, call Echelon Front. It's me, Leif Babin, JP Denell, Dave Burke. Our website is echelonfront dot com, and we solve problems through leadership. That's it. Of course, the Muster Leadership Seminar 5005 005 was in Washington D C. It was awesome, and it sold out. Yes. And there's only one more muster in 2018. It's muster 006 in San Francisco, California, October 17th and 18th. Register at extremeownership.com if you want to come. It will sell out. And that's all there is to it. And also for current law enforcement, military, firefighters, paramedics, and other first responders, roll call 001, September 21st in Dallas, Texas. One day leadership training seminar focused on people in uniform. You can register for that also at extremeownership.com. And until the muster or the roll call or the immersion camp in Maine, if you want to communicate with us, you know that you can find us on the interwebs. Echo is at Echo Charles, and I am at Jocko Willink. And to the men of the greatest generation, like Mr. T. Fred Harvey. Thank you for your service and to the rest of the men and women out there Continuing to hold the line. Thanks to you and to your families For what you do every day and what they do to support you of course Thanks to all the force first responders police law enforcement firefighters paramedics and those who stand the watch 24-7 to keep us safe and to the rest of you life can be hard and life can be challenging and life can contain a fair amount of suffering but you know what it's the one life you've got so go and live a life that in the end allows you to look back and say hell yes i'd do it all again Until next time, this is Echo and Jocko out.